Welcome to Mecha Nations, a critical analysis and rewatch podcast of all things Mecha. I am one of your hosts, Ignis Maddox, and I am regular Zom. I'm Steven Hero, and I'm Horny Zom. I'm PMC Trilogy, and I'm Huge Zom. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're doing it. It's, are we, are it's we... April showers, clowns. Let's go. <laughs> it's April showers, jeez. Well, I mean, of of the, the three of us, I don't want to speak for, for Steven Hero here, but of the three of us, I think PMC has been the most busy. Do you want to get us started here, PMC? Yeah, so I've had a busy a busy period of time doing some, some marathons, some speedrun marathons, although not really too much in the way of mech stuff just yet. Uh, there will be some armored core showing up uh, in a week and a half at Valuethon, uh, but otherwise I've been I've been doing the diehard first person shooter. I did that at, at two marathons in the past few days. Uh, as if you if you're listening to this on the first day it's out, or maybe the second day, I'll be doing uh, Recoil, which is a 1999 PC game by the same devs. It's actually the same engine and developers that did MechWarrior Three. They made this tank game called Recoil, and I'll be doing that at ESA together on uh, on ESA Marathon. That would be Toys Day the 9th? That's right. That would be Thursday the 9th of April, uh, like a, like 11 p.m. Uh, East Coast time. All right. Yeah, so that should be fun. Nice. It's, it's, Recoil is interesting because it it's very much uh, it's it's a vehicular combat game, but it's on PC, and you're able to, to free aim with the mouse to do the mouse look. And, so, and the, the progression is very focused around picking up additional weapons. So it's kind of got that, that first-person shooter design you know, where, where your progression really is about how the different weapons operate. Vehicular combat is a, like, genre, a game genre that really disappeared once we entered into the, like, the 360 era. Uh, I feel like uh, uh, PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 were the last time I heard about. Because, like, there was a uh, Twisted Metal that came out, right? There was, like, I a PS3 Twisted was, Metal. Yeah, there was... I'm trying to remember which one, because I always think it's, like, Small Brawl, but I think that was still PS2. But the, yeah, that yeah. studio, I think, still managed to put out... The, the Twisted Metal dev still put out one on, on 7th Gen consoles, yeah. Yeah, the last big one was Jaffe's game, Twisted Metal Black. Of course, of course early PS2. Right, um, I mean, Twisted Metal Black was early PS2. I do think there were Twisted Metals after that, though, I thought. I, I think there were, too. Yeah. yeah. I can remember this. This seems like once we had understood, like, okay, we could create movement in a 3D arena, you know, uh, getting believable human figures is still pretty tough, but... Vehicles are usually geometric, so we can make those. You know? Okay, so so it was a reboot of <laughs> it was just a reboot of Twisted Metal called Twisted Metal in 2012. Oh. That's uh, okay, sure. Yep, that's why I don't remember it. That's okay. why, yeah, it's because people keep calling the games the same as the old ones. Yeah, thanks. That's, uh, but yeah, no. Uh, it, what I was going to say is that it, it's interesting. <laughs> All you would have to do to make recoil mech game is if the, the fucking tank had legs, and, right? You know, which I'm I'm very curious to see what Mech Warrior Three feels like when, whenever I get around to it because uh, you know again I'm curious if it'll if it'll play similarly. I expect it will shoot similarly, but maybe because of the emphasis on you know mech simulation walking, uh, you know yeah. it won't be there will be no drifting. <laughs> in in <Yeah>. recoil, you <laughs> can drift and get sick well, air. So I have no personal experience to this, but I I do believe from listening to Waypoints perhaps too much, 
that Austin Walker has spoken to this about how you 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 know the the act of of playing a game often is kind of about learning control and and it's less about like I point and and click and I the missile is going to be where I clicked and it's more about like oh you know I, they're coming from this angle and if I turn this way I'll be facing the right way to be hitting them with my projectiles in like I don't know a second and a half versus, you know, and it feels to me that like, uh, that kind of, I don't want to say, you know, some people maybe even at the time contemporarily might've called those bad controls, but I do feel like that, that sort of flavor of control of mechanical feel is what kind of separates something like a mech game from something like recoil, where obviously the, the mechanical, uh, goals of recoil were to have a fun, Right, to be a, a much game. higher pace of action. No, I, I think that's yeah. right. I think the the that's. I feel like usually that's if I were to, to define what simulation means when I try to talk about a genre of game. I think that simulation idea is really when the focus of the game is using the controls to communicate something to you about the nature of what you're doing. Like that's why we would separate Gran Turismo from Burnout because because Gran Turismo has an interest outside of fun racing. Right. Right. I think the mechanical goals there is sort of what what and I and I think the way you put it is is probably a better way, but yeah, I mean you know uh, I think the the interesting thing about all of this is a lot of the skills you pick up from one we've talked about this before mm-hmm. how this is this is a hobby that kind of like even when you're, you're uh, experimenting with things that don't really have a relation like recoil and Nakatomi Plaza. Uh, you know, you could take your your toilet paper clipping skills from one game and apply them to the next game. You know, I don't think Recoil has a toilet paper clip in the same way that Nakatomi does. I wish it did. I really did, though. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Other than your your future runs, uh, are you playing anything casually that you would like to discuss? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to set you up. I'm just saying, if you do, I mean, if you have I, something, I'm still deeper into Shadow Hearts Covenant, which is a a very much, I think, a, a revelation. If you if you just want to lap up delicious turn based JRPGs from the early 2000s, I feel like you could you would do pretty well uh, to play that game uh, and also immerse yourself in the the very the very bizarre historical takes uh, yeah. in that game, uh, which which are which are. I don't know. It's some of it feels like it can, it can be it, it borders on sort of lazy, problematic takes. Uh, there's a few mm. characters here and there. Uh, some of it's just strange. Like I, I almost feel like I don't know enough, for example, about 1918 Russian history to really truly judge this uh, de- depiction of Rasputin. <laughs> you know, who <laughs> yeah, knows? Right. Uh, it's uh, but it's certainly. I mean, I think the the weirdest thing that happened was probably. Uh, one of the defining plot moments was that we opened a secret vault in the Vatican, which released evil spirits that will increase the malice of the people. And uh-huh. apparently, a lot of those spirits, yeah, checks out. And all the spirits just like went straight to 1918 Moscow, which <laughs> suggests some things that I'm not sure I'm wholly on board with. Although the idea that the Vatican would have had an accident releasing evil spirits that would have created the Russian Revolution is certainly loaded in many ways. <laughs> so that, That's how Lenin and the rest of the Bolsheviks managed to clinch the revolution was because of uh, Vatican spirits, rogue right, Vatican yeah, spirits. exactly. They had an inside oh, man. man. I wish I had the time to unpack every single thing you just told us. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> 
What a what a what a crazy! It, it only in the PlayStation Two, PlayStation One era of JRPGs could we have a game such as this. Oh where... yeah, and, and like one of our party members, as I, I think I mentioned this previously, is Princess Anastasia, who uh, is also now completely smitten with the pretty boy samurai who joined our party. Oh my god, which is his, his own set of anime hijinks. So wait, is the game going to profess that the the reason that Princess Anastasia went went missing was because she she married a, a Japanese prince and was chilling so. in Japan? That's fucking awesome. <laughs> I do hope so. That's really. I hope. I hope. I hope she gets a super weird happy ending and they move to Wales or something. I don't know. <laughs> So, you know, I, I am certainly no expert on history anything, but I, I do know that, that Rasputin is a, a almost in the same way that, that the Greek figure Hades has, has become like seen as villainous, despite being one of the more chill gods of the Greek pantheon. I, I think Rasputin is kind of unfairly maligned. Like, he definitely was like a hack fraud. For sure, oh yeah. You know, he he was like a medicine man, and it was probably just a weirdo that the you know the SARS were friends with. But I, I think you know he's in in like pop fiction, he's really been made out to be like a warlock, like a, <laughs> like an evil sorcerer, and and then it's this weird. So like off the top of my head, there is of course there's Don Bluth's Anastasia, where he is the primary antagonist. Uh, and then in the the Guillermo del Toro uh, initial Hellboy, he is the primary antagonist. Uh, oh Gerori my Rasputin. fucking god! I forgot about that. Uh, yeah, um, I I know there is a Street Fighter knockoff fighting game called World Heroes where Rasputin is a playable character and is definitely like, you know, is not the primary antagonist of that game, but is given signifiers I would describe as like shady, you know. Um, it, it's interesting that the, this historical figure's legacy is is one of like, uh, you know, even more than than Napoleon Bonaparte in games. In games, not literature. Literature has feelings about Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, but no, can you think of a JRPG that's like, oh shit, Napoleon Bonaparte has fused with God and this is now fucking trying uh, to fight us with his missed big... opportunity. <laughs> Well, wait a second. How do we know that Assassin's Creed didn't do this at some point? Oh, you know, you're right. I haven't played all those fucking yeah, Assassin's Yeah, there was Creed's. a French one. And was was that fresh, was that French Revolution or was that later? I don't remember. I never played French that. Revolution, but it was French Revolution. Napoleon could have played a part on the periphery. Yeah, I maybe. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't be they surprised if he shows up. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my one other oh. note is, is that I did watch like uh, the first uh, like dozen episodes of Iron Blooded Orphans on Netflix. Um, show I feel like I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm repeating what some of we uh, we might have listened to Austin Walker say about the show. It's politics about class uh, are good, like very straightforward. I like the hero. He seems like a the main character seems like a better version of Hero Yui, which is maybe a low bar, but fine. <laughs> and. Uh, but the show is deeply confused about anything to do with uh, with gender, and so it is Great. a real mixed bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. The the uh, Iron Blooded Orphans is, is one I haven't checked out personally yet, and mostly on the recommendation of, of a relative who who uh, basically accused it of falling into. And, and it's hard to say how much you could blame any modern show for this, but just becoming a modern show, basically, just like feeling obligated to, you know, popular tropes that things are doing. And, and like, 
how much this will bother you is very your mileage may vary. I'm, I'm not saying that that automatically puts it in the garbage dump. I could just for me. Like I have a very time and place sort of. Have, have you felt like it is? I know I'm, I know that's mm. vague, but like, have you felt that as you proceed? I know twelve is really not that many in for an. Yeah, anime, I but. mean, so the the thing is, I I get that sense. I I feel like a lot of the things that I've heard people use to describe anime of the past decade, I feel like those are showing up in the show. The thing that probably saves it for me is that. I don't really think I've watched any anime in the past right. decade. That's <laughs> so, what I was, it's kind of new to me. That's what I was curious about. I was curious, you know, uh, I, you know, for me, I, my, if I have a, uh, like, gu- quote unquote guilty pleasure, I would, I would reject the idea that this is a thing that even exists. But it would be Shokugeki no Soma, the, the Food Wars show, and, and this was the show that was around for a little while ago, and it maybe still current. I don't know. Is that uh, any good? One of my students was that we're on quarantine. Sent me a list of anime I should watch, and that was one of them. Shokugeki. Wow, what a weird. I'll, 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 t- I'll take a screenshot. It's can worthy you, of a screenshot. Can you imagine sending your teacher like recommendations for shows that are explicitly as horny as Shokugeki no Soma? Like maybe like, it's not on there. Then hold on, I'll, I'll bring it up. This is if, if Food Wars is material. on there, it's it's the same show. Shokugeki no Soma. That it moves, Shokugeki is just the title of a of a kind of cooking competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you might have seen this on social media a while back because this was a show where you would try a food and it would be so good it gives you an orgasm. Uh, right. And and this show has comically exaggerated reactions to well prepared food. And the other thing that this has is exaggerated sort of. Uh, uh, presentation on cooking technique or things that are our anime versions of cooking technique and if you're a food person it's fun on that level it is very horny and it is full of uh uh what you know we've talked about when we, we uh, talk about the black siblings for Gurren Lagann mm-hmm. um the, <laughs> that's the, uh, <laughs> the um you, how they come in like flavors right um, and it, it, that sort of trope about about the lady characters being presented as sort of like okay, this is the one with glasses and she is meek, and this is the one who has the long hair and is v- a sex pot, and this is the one who is the young one who speaks in the third person. That's kind of what I'm talking about when I talk about like modern. It, it feels like characters don't exist to be characters; they exist to be, uh, you know. Every show has their Sundere character, or every show has their, you know, and and that's more that sort of... But if you're not someone who's, like, intimately familiar or just sick of that shit, then I could see it working fine, right? If you're not... Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's not an accusation, it's just like... No, it, it, but a, that's true, right? Is that sometimes when you when you start to get, like, more familiar with the, with the category of works, you know, your, your perception of things change. And certainly if you're not... You know, it's like watching only a few anime and not coming to realize that, like, the same dubbing studio did every anime. Right, yeah. It's it's, it's something that I, I uh, struggle with when it comes to s- stuff like... Um, Oh God! Why is this the only example I can think of? Well, something like Hunter Hunter, where um, a, a part of the strength of Hunter Hunter is the fact that it avoids the common pitfalls of its of its. I don't want to say genre, but genre, right? Mm-hmm. Like Hunter Hunter doesn't have a singular genre. You know, you could call it just shonen, but it, it's it very much goes beyond that sort of idea. Other than having fights and anime magic, right? Which it does also have, but what makes that show impressive and, and really good is understanding and being 
like, you know, familiar with how typically this would go. And there are people who reject that as like a level of quality, right? There are people who are like, well, that's not, that's not good in and of itself. That's you being trained to expect a thing and it doing the opposite and, and instead of being clever. But sometimes that's also being clever. This is a thing that's difficult about making uh, any recommendations, I find. Like, do you, we, we talked about uh, Doom Eternal. Let, let's bring this around, actually, because we, yeah. we, are, we are on the cusp of something big on the horizon, gentlemen. Uh, as, as three JRPG fans. Oh, yeah. Uh, Seven? Final Fantasy VII Remake will launch uh, Good Friday on the best fucking Friday. Uh, uh, Cloud will, will rise from that cave. Is Jesus gonna in bear, the cave? He's going to bear that cross. <laughs> It's, Have you seen Advent Children recently? There's a lot of Christ imagery in that film. Yeah, I've seen Advent Children recently. I, I remember thinking that Advent Children isn't quite as 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 batshit and dumb as I remember. Um, it, it's it it definitely makes no sense, but I I I recall it being much stupider than it actually is. There's some good uh, fights. Well, yeah, I mean, visually, it's it's completely fun. Like, there's no problem with it as a like visual experience and a and a sort of like, yay, we're we're finally fucking in the setting again. Like, finally, <laughs> why did it take this long? Oh, excuse me, I, I punched my microphone in fury. Understandable. Um, um but uh, the thing that I'm and this is the the maximum ignismatics thing to say about the Final Fantasy VII remake. I am very curious what Final Fantasy VII is like completely divorced from xenogears and and that might seem that like is a the most sickness cra- maddest take yeah it, well so th- that might seem like an insane thing and maybe we've talked about this on the show you guys can stop me if we have but it, you know squaresoft at that time everything was kind of intermingling and and had its 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 involvement with all of the big hits whatever like your favorite playstation one square game was it, it like probably all the same people worked on it at one point or another you know whether that's Final Fantasy 7 which led into Parasite Eve and then led into Xenogears and Chrono Cross which led into Final Fantasy 8 and Final Fantasy 8 being the thing that caused the Xenogears disc 2 situation <laughs> and Chrono Cross being someone involved in that what i'm curious about is Final Fantasy 7 was very much a magical accident of all of these things coming together under this single thematic umbrella of um what's his name's grief right i cannot remember the sakaguchi the, sakaguchi thank you uh and i'm curious now where it's like okay this is a fully realized story we know what this whole story looks like and and how it doesn't have anything to do with its original pitch from tetsuya takashi and soraya saga um, do you guys know about the the leftover or the reference to xenogears that's in final fantasy 7 like specifically, that I do not know. Yeah, specifically to Xenogears in Final Fantasy VII, a game that was released before Xenogears. Um, okay, so spoilers for Final Fantasy VII. F- please show yourself out of this podcast if you're concerned about spoilers for Final Fantasy VII. Um, there is a point where Cloud will lose access to his his faculties. He will lose his mind due to falling into a stream of of, of Mako of pure Mako, I think. Uh, he just falls into the live stream, and and he is he is uh, uh, not comatose, but he is non-responsive basically. Um, and if you speak to him multiple times, uh, one of the things he will mention he will mention being one personality in in a, in a number of them, which is a, a less I would say straightforward reference because obviously spoilers. This is what's happening to Cloud currently. Um, but the the other thing he will say in the original text of the game. He will make mention of something he calls Zeno Gaizu, 
Um, and mm. because they were just translating it directly, that's what they came up with, right? And and me saying it, you can see what it's it's supposed to say. Um, but you, uh, if you look on modern translations, if you play the Final Fantasy VII right now on mm-hmm. PSP or. It, he says Xenogears. He's referring to Xenogears uh, because Xenogears was, it, it, I think I mentioned it just now, the initial, one of the initial pitches for the plot of Final Fantasy VII be from Tetsuya Takahashi and Soraya Saga. And, you know, there's so many bones there, and I'm just very curious what Final Fantasy, and apparently it, it it's good. Like, you know, people who I feel like, you know, I would go to for, like, who is the, who's the harsh toke? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just listened to the two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour waypoints, and they're pretty gushing on it, so I was a little surprised. It's kind of shocking, because, you know, I don't want to be mean, because I liked Kingdom Hearts 3. I'm one of the minority who was like, Kingdom Hearts 3 was a fine game, but Kingdom Hearts 3 was not that good. <laughs> like, it, it was fun for me, but, like, I recognize that as a specific-to-me thing and not as a, like, game so i'm, I'm curious I, I expected final fantasy 7 remake to be the same where it was like i'm kind of fine with this emotional experience but this isn't good like mm-hmm. this is me going like oh look there's um i don't know some shit from the hashtag laser taser game <laughs> like that's what i'm going to be thinking of is jokes that pmc and i told during our our uh, let's play of, of final fantasy 7 from i don't know some old some untold generations ago at this point but yeah uh are you both planning on picking that up yeah, I'll be there Friday. I, I'm be, probably going to hold off. I, I, you know, I'm not, not that I'm like uh, opposed to it or something, but you know, I, at this point, I think that my major next RPG after Covenant is going to be Trails of Cold Steel Three. That's really because oh, yeah. that finally came out on PC like uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, so, I did start playing the first one. Yeah, uh, I so did gonna, start that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you enjoying it? Yeah. So uh, something that I'm, I feel like I'm surprised I haven't heard more from you is, is like. Uh, accusations of, of Persona really obviously Persona came first as far mm. as the the structure that this game is undertaking but uh Persona and Fire Emblem Three Houses especially really is cribbing off of this style in a big bad way as far as like future sorts of like obviously this came out after Persona 3 and yeah. before uh uh 5 but there's so much here as far as the like being put into a special house and being, you know, being introduced to personalities of these different kids. And, and I suspect the experience of watching them grow as characters over this long told form story and, and following the political machinations from the initial trails games. And, and there are things where I, I'm playing the classic machinations game of, uh, is this a previously established character? <laughs> Some of them I know from from watching PMC streams and and uh, playing a little tiny bit of the other Trails games, and some of them I don't. So uh, it's been fun to be introduced to this world, this Kaseki world, and figuring out. Uh, there, there was one thing I wanted to ask you on stream. Mm. So there, initially we were introduced to like the the older students, the senpais, yeah, uh, who who are there was like a chubby kid who I liked. I liked cute chubby kid. There was like. Uh, no offense to you, bland small anime girl, but there was bland small anime girl who who hasn't yet had any personality traits other than anime girl, and then there was uh, um, bandana stoner, I would call him, mm-hmm. um, and um, leather lesbian. Yes, um, that is correct. And, uh, leather lesbian apparently uh, this is this is the game I'm paraphrasing. Leather lesbian's libido is so powerful that apparently she has, like, left the, the, the men of the school basically barren. 
not not from fucking them, but from fucking all the available women. There is no one left to fuck. <laughs> it's just I enjoyed very much that uh, on its face, sort of like, hey, check out this gay lady. She gay. And it, it was just surprising. It's not the sort of thing. I mean, I will say that flavor of it, while fun for me, is kind of the only flavor you get, which is like, mm-hmm. look at how outrageous this queer right, character right. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also, I love her. So yeah, uh, unless she's super forget, you'll evil. spend some time with her. No, no, she's she's a good one. She's a keeper. She yeah. stuff comes up both in this it's, game and two. It's hard for me to separate one and two at this point, but uh, is, is Bandana Stoner the uh, the the other mech boy? I obviously I remember the ending of this game okay. much more <laughs> yes, distinctly. Yes, he is. He is. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay, that's I was like, okay, yeah. I thought he was the other mech boy. Uh, uh, Steven Hero, I'm so sorry to leave you out of this for so long, but <laughs> oh, it's alright, don't worry. The, the the end of this game has an explicit Xenogears call out, which is why I rem- I, I remember it so precisely. I mean, I I will go to my grave believing it's an explicit Xenogears oh, it call has out. To be. It has to. I don't be. know it's how too, it could The diction be. is too specific. Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, speaking of Steven Hero, did you have anything for our our delicious or our juicy juicy Marin? I've never listened to any of f- uh, fucking Mark Marin's podcast. We call this a Marin. I'm sorry. Uh, go I've, ahead. <laughs> I have a few things. I'll start with the game stuff. I just I PMC. You'll be happy to hear that I defeated uh, Medeus, uh, the ancient shadow dragon, threatening uh, worldwide <laughs> destruction in Tokyo Mirage Sessions. Uh, Why is I it always a fucking I smote his dragon upon the mountainside? God. Wait, what was that? Why is it always a fucking dragon? I know. So I have a few final thoughts on it. All right. If you're looking for a more, I don't know, digestible Persona game, if you're playing on normal difficulty, you'll probably finish in about 30, 30 hours. I was about to say 30 minutes. 30 hours. Uh, if you really like, as a really energetic and engaging battle system, this is your game. Can if, I say however, some- yeah, jump in. Oh, can I say something potentially spicy? And you boys yeah. are free to disagree with me on this. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to confess something. Uh, when revisiting JRPGs, revisiting, not for the first time, but revisiting, I've been playing JRPGs that give me the option on easy. I've been doing it. I've been doing it pretty consistently when when going through, because uh, honestly, I'm coming back for the, probably for the story. I could give two shits about the mechanics. Two shits. Unless there's something specific new that I'm trying to do, like, especially for Persona games. Persona game mechanics can can kind of go fuck off. I, I am I am sorry to say, <laughs> like the 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 way that it's like Pokemon, but somehow even more tedious. Like, please just let me steamroll through this. I just want to be a superhero and get to the story bit. Like, I just want to see you're not alone. I, I have I'm right now going through Final Fantasy IX on the PlayStation Portable sort of re-release of it on the PlayStation Three that I have. Uh, the hashtag Laser Taser machine, in fact. Um, but uh, I wish I was playing it on Steam or on uh, uh, the Switch so I could turn on all the fucking cheats and I wouldn't feel like I would need to do any of this busy work. Anyway, sorry, uh, Stephen Hero. Go on ahead. Now, I'll jump off that real jump on that, I guess, by jumping off that a bit. I don't know. I, I like the best of both worlds for me. SMT is a really important series for me, so I am so used to the gameplay mechanics that I really do enjoy the challenge and strategic, strategic place for my characters. So I usually plan hard just because it comes so natural, and I do appreciate the challenge. I can understand why people play on different difficulty levels. But now, especially as I'm getting older, I actually prefer being in the dungeons and being in those moody, atmospheric environments. Not that Tokyo Mirage Sessions has them, but just in general. Mm. Like I still enjoy it for the story beats. Like, per- Let's talk about Persona real quick. The story, you could, I could really throw it in the trash can. I do like the social links, but the story is just so rote and so convoluted at times that I really don't care. For the five Lord, or any yeah. of them? I mean, I'm in it. I'm paying attention. I'm 
critically engaged, but I'm really there, especially for five, for the gameplay, the dungeons, and the aesthetic style, the mood, right. the atmosphere. So the story I sometimes view as disposable, which might be unfair on my part as a critic, but it's just who I am. But like I played uh, when I was in Japan, I played through Persona Q2, the Etrian Odyssey Persona-like, mm-hmm. and I had a great time with it because it strips a lot of the problematic elements of Persona out, and it's really just grinding and being in those dungeons and testing your metal, and that's what I appreciate. But yeah. I, well, specifically for SMT games, because I really do consider Tokyo Mirage Sessions a SMT game, I'm usually in it, and I'm very much classic SMT. SMT has veered off in another direction at this point, which I'm still there for day one, but I'm really curious where SMT5 ultimately goes, is that I like it for, its, its baseline tone is melancholy, and through that melancholy tone, it invites reflection and contemplation with a really kick-ass battle system. That's what I'm usually there for. And Tokyo Mirage Sessions is a little too saccharine for my taste. I like anime. I like saccharine shit. I like, you know, high-octane energy. This is a little too sweet at times for my taste. Uh, the, the tropes were a little too aggressively stale. Hmm. And I thought the story was a little disposable. I still enjoyed it. I know I'm coming down pretty negative here, but it was like a, it was a solid, like a seven point five in EGM speak. Do you think JRPG? Do you think that uh, it is precisely too teenagery, or do you think that's not even really a factor? Because like I'm thinking of something like something I know all, all three of us loved, which is The World Ends With You, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which is the perfect teenager game, which I would play right this second and feel... Yeah, well, yeah, but that, it's more ex- ex- existential. It's a little more moody for my taste. The writing is a little bit more mature. Not okay. to slight the writing with Tokyo Mirage Sessions, but like I said before, the writers seem a little bored with their own lore, and it all seemed a bit perfunctory just to get to the end of the game, just okay. to get to those Fire Emblem uh, illusions. Do you think then this this one veers more on the like we want this to be anime approachable like SMT with maybe some more Dragon Questy sort of people interested because of the the anime appeal where SMT in my head I've always sort of uh, uh, even though this isn't the case I think of things like uh, do you remember how every uh, 3D Castlevania had that one painting artist mm-hmm. the artist it was very uh, uh uh elaborate and even though it was anime it was also very like uh uh distinguished and, ro- and not quite the uh yoshitaka mono but in that vein do you remember what i'm talking about with those yeah. game mm-hmm. covers um mm-hmm. i feel like with smt that's the sort of like to, to jump off what you're saying about about uh, uh moodiness and atmosphere that's what i've always pictured is like digital devil saga or, um, SMT is the for me most most SMT fans would probably agree Nocturne. are the PS2 Nocturne especially but the yeah. PS2 RPGs Nocturne the two digital Devil Saga games and both Devil Summoner games which I haven't played but I really do want to yeah Nocturne gives me a specific bottom of my stomach feeling that is difficult to assert like a sort of descriptor for but is is like I promise you exactly correct. <laughs> it's um you know one of those games that i i played when i was young and now i don't think i could ever play again at least not without doc mr dr game shark is that the one that it. features dante from the devil may cry series <laughs> yeah, that is yes, a okay. one. all right just checking. featuring and knuckles i guess i didn't really i did start cold steel um i'm i want to finish doom eternal before final fantasy 7 starts uh on the on the good friday but i'm also not like you know 
uh, I'm not going to be rushing through Final Fantasy Seven. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit. I'm probably going to go just like when Evangelion happened. I'm probably going to try and go even more Twitter agnostic than I am currently. Um, because I, as much as I'm like, oh, I wish this was Xenogears, I, I don't know if I would survive a Xenogears remake. Uh, hmm. yeah, PMC is shaking his head vehemently and he's correct. <laughs> I, I don't know what that would mean. I would be so unprepared for it. And like what? I, yeah, it would be, it would be hard to even capture. I, it's weird. I don't know. That game is too weird. Right. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree that the, uh, it really only could have come out in 1998 or 1999. Like it, it really only could have been then. Is that when it came out or is it 98? 98. It's a 98 game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's what I thought. Um, God damn, what a couple years. 97 and 98 were like, damn. Anyway. I'm also uh, playing Resident Evil 3. I'm almost done, but I'll save the, my thoughts on that for next pod so I could talk about the complete package. Oh, I would love that. I would love that because the, the, the conversations around Resident Evil 3 are fascinating. <laughs> I I do not understand them, and I'm interested to hear your take on them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been using those te- the, the takes from that discourse to uh, to dry my clothes. They've been so hot. It's been very yeah. good. Exactly. I like the game, but it's my opinion's a lot uh, is more negative than my thoughts on RE2 remake. But I'm still liking the game for different reasons than other yeah, people. Yeah, sounds think good. It's, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that that's ha- that is happening on the back of people really enjoying Seven. Looks like you failed. Speaking of of really enjoying things, uh, you know what I, I I wish we could really enjoy, but is a little hard right now is is the blue sky. Uh, uh, but you know who gets to do it are these people in Gurren Lagan right now. At least a year ago, they got to. Uh, in episode 21, you guys ready to talk about episode 21 yeah. and 22? Sure You want to shift into, you want to spin on right into episode 21? You are someone who ought to survive. Um, <clears throat> oh, I should, I should go ahead and, and clear my throat right into the mic, right? That's what people love, right? Just, just blast it. Just blast yeah. it with flavor. <laughs> um... One year before the events we have thus far seen in the past few episodes on the bucolic... Bucolic doesn't mean what I thought it meant when I put this together. Korahana Island. A mysterious new teacher comes into town on a yellow scooter. She is tall and strong and kind, beloved by her new students, plus or minus one Mausha. Nakim, a young boy who finds himself bullied and othered, wonders if she is related to one of the heroes of humanity, Yoko Littner who is portrayed in the history books they're studying. She is, of course, simply Yomako-sensei. Yomako's simple life as a teacher, providing a world where kids can look up at the sun without a care in the world, is her way of continuing the life in the way, her life in the way Yoko Littner wanted to live. Of course, life goes on despite the dreams of yesterday. She witnesses the collapse of world order uh, as the anti-spirals threatened the world she fought for, that Kamina died for. After rescuing one of her students from errant bandits and receiving an infuriating call from Roshiu, Yoko decides to make for Kamina City. There, she frees Simone and Viral, rejoins the Digrendon, and together they make for space to face their intergalactic foe. So 21 is, I think, I think most people know this one as like as the Yoko episode. Um, and, and while it is that, it kind of also isn't in a way that, that disrupted me for my watch. Do, do you guys have, have any thoughts on that? This is going to be a spicy take, but this could have been my least favorite episode of the show. Oh, man. Interesting. I'm not quite there, but I, I am 
I am deeply frustrated because there are there are moments where I am so ready to 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 say like yes, Yoko is awesome, and these are some of the character beats we needed. And she gets like I feel like the action, like the action hero part of it, she does the one liners and all that. But we don't really get like I I needed to. I can apply a read that makes the episode great for me, yes. but I'm not convinced that that is actually there. Yeah, it, it, the, the thing you're describing right now, I think, is is exactly right. It, it feels like this was an opportunity. If you want to hear us being upset about not having insight onto a character who is important to the char- to the story's you know functioning, go listen to our Pat Labor Two podcast uh, because. That's immediately what I thought of when I when we watched when I watched this episode on the first viewing. The first viewing, I was really unhappy with the lack of insight in, in Yoko's own words that we had into some of these decisions. And it was only upon the the second watch where I started to understand more the the function that I think this episode serves in in the greater plot, rather than as a a sort of showcase for Yoko. Because as much as it is that, uh, and I love. Yomako Sensei, and I love the the imagery of her coming into town mysteriously on a yellow scooter. Like shout outs, I'm into that. That's fucking great. Um, and, you know, and if you don't know specifically what I'm referring to, there the this is probably a reference to Fuli Kuli, the, the previous Gainax show in which it starred a mysterious woman coming into town on a yellow scooter to disrupt a young boy's life. Um, and you know the way that that Gainax handles women in power. Uh, it feels like this is one of the ways they they are most comfortable presenting a woman in power. There's like like I don't want to be reductive, but it feels like there's like three ways, <laughs> and and the three ways are like sex pot but doesn't know it, sex pot but does know it, and then mom, um, and uh, and you know I, I'm not trying to be rude or, or or be like dismissive of characters who are are way more interesting than just boiling it down to that. Like I I can, I you know it, I can hear the keyboards of people clicking clacking as as they're like how dare you Asuka blah blah blah. But um, it's it's one of these things that that makes it difficult for me to to really go like ah yes, Yoko becoming a teacher is something Yoko Littner would choose to do and not what uh you know like 35 to 40 year old dudes who are what so what do what do women do i don't know i guess they maternal shit (laughs) you know it's it's really hard for me to be like because on one hand there is an a academic part of me that that puts on my glasses and goes ah yes we we as an audience needed an emotional connection to an, an innocent citizenry that would be affected by the fucking moon destroying the earth because all the citizens we've seen on screen thus far are are, are assholes. <laughs> like, I've been depicted as eyeless, horrible ghosts that just hate Simone. Yeah, it's 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 very much th- that, and and you know the last time we saw them before even this episode, they 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 were destroying a statue of Kamina. <laughs> you know, a, a, it is not a a, a, uh, a you know exaggeration to say the uh, a beloved character, right? I think you know as a as a podcast, we have sort of been on the 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 general side of like, oh, Kamina serves a very important purpose, and it obviously is fun, but is definitely not. The figure that that I think he became in 2007, 2008, when the show was was really you know at its apex, or 2009. What I don't know what time is, but you know, 
it, it's hard to trust that this is like an honest insight into Yoko, right? I feel like we're all unanimous on on that note, right? As far as like, while there are like things that are fun parallels, right? Like like being at the top of the tree and paralleling the shot of of being up in the sky in the first episode with Nakim, who's clearly supposed to be like a like a Simone XP, right? Yeah, um, it is like cute. It's like, yeah, this is a nice story, and, and this is close to insight into why Yoko is doing this. Because what it kind of reveals, and, and the, uh, in my, my summary I reference it, what it kind of reveals is that this is a, a follow-up to something that, that she spoke with Kamina about. So put yourselves way, way back into the far, far ago of episode 7 of Tegan Tapa Gurren Lagan. At the end of episode 7 of Gurren Lagan. Uh, Yoko meets with Kamina uh, at night, and he's looking up at the moon, and he's talking about how, at the very least, coming up to the surface, he got to see this, and how he wants to provide a world. He This is what he says specifically. Uh, he wants this to provide a world for uh, uh, Simone and Dakosuke, that is, you know, forehead boy, that's Roshiu, um, and Gimme and Dari, a, a world where they could grow up with uh, a, a blue cloudless sky without a care in the world. And and it feels like, you know, when when it comes to the rest of the Daigurin Brigade, they're very much like, you know, we're just going to ride this wave out, right? Uh, uh, so you know, uh, we need a new uh, new government. Roshi was like, okay, uh, w- we will put this together because it's for the common good, and I, I'm I'm that guy. Uh, and Simone's like, okay, cool, whatever. I can't imagine Simone was like, I'm president of Earth. <laughs> like, I can't imagine that was his idea. It was probably, and I'm, I'm not doing this to, to put this on Roshu, but it feels like it was Roshu's idea. That that, but I, who knows? Honestly, they could have all decided unanimously. Um, and and it feels like the smartest people in the Daigurin Brigade, uh, at least as far as their philosophical leanings go, got out. Right. And, and, you know, we like Makin and Leite, MVPs, uh, you know, Mechanation's favorite getting on top of Gurren Lagan characters, you know, uh, just became mechanics. And Yoko pieced the fuck out. She left a year ago to do something, I guess, that she was more in control of. Uh, I have my read about this and, and what, what this is. And, and that's what I was just explaining the. This is following up on something she spoke to Kamina about. But what what did you guys think about why she chose to do this? Like why this whole new uh, identity and this whole teaching? Like what does she, you know, what does she know? <laughs> Very recent history and and marksmanship. I'm not. I love Yoko, but this was now, I, the first time I watched this. I was very confused. No, that's a real good point too. But as I watched this episode and then rewatched this episode, like I don't really doubt Yoko's sincerity, but I want to explore her character growth further, which the show is really incapable of doing. In this case, I really don't think the show-don't-tell approach works, and I'm usually a fan of the show-don't-tell approach, but I needed the text to be pretty explicit with this, and it wasn't, because Yogo is so explicitly sexualized that it kind of blunts whatever conclusion she reaches over the last seven years, and to me it signals that nothing's changed. She still labors under the gaze of her male creators, and I actually think that she owns her body less now, which I know is a super strange thing to say considering her past outfits or outfit, but there's something about like the hot, sexy teacher trope that I just can't shake here, and that seems excessively manufactured. And whenever the show has the chance to tell me why Yoko is an educator, I think she makes a pretty good teacher. I'll talk about that later. 
but it sidesteps the question of Yoko's new identity in favor of gags, some of which the gags are funny with her and the students, and occasionally lewd objectification. I'm talking about when she is talking to the village elder, and this is a classic Yoko shot, and it's framed from basically just the boobs. It's just framed boobs, and you can't cut off the head. Or even when it's doing the previous episode recap at the beginning, when she busts into the jail, what is the first thing we see? Her breast jiggling, and that is so offensive. It, well, Before we even see it. her face. Yeah, totally. What, what, and, you know, I, PMC, I hope I'm not cutting you off here uh, and, and jumping into this. But what really sucks about it is how much of it is, like... Uh, so when we talked about um, Kenan in the previous set of episodes, uh, I was cu- I was critical of the way that she was depicted in it uh, because I, I felt like it was preventing her from having dignity in this moment, right? That that she had to be this object of of sexualization or ridicule or what have you, right? It was a joke that that she isn't cool looking in the mech, right? And in contrast, that later to um, when Yoko is in the Diakaiser and she's like breaking Earth's orbit. And, and, you know, I don't want to be like, and check out her titties, but like, they're not jiggling in the way that Kenon's were, right? And and this, to me, when I'm talking about like visual language, and when we, we were saying like, oh, th- what sucks about this is they clearly understand it because they did this bit with Nia's uh, wedding ring. Um, the fact that she isn't as, you know, uh, Gynax jiggly in the, that moment, despite going through something that I would I would think would be more turbulent than just travel right like obviously <laughs> both are, are are turbulent but i would think breaking earth's atmosphere would be also pretty turbulent um you know i ain't no brain scientist but that makes sense to me it it just you know and then you contrast it with the choices they do make in the action scene right which is like there's uh particularly a shot where she has saved Mausha and like she kind of like drops the, her in front of her parents and the way we see her leave the frame is is her tits we're just watching her 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 boobs move out of the frame and and it's a, such a shame because the next shot immediately the point of the next shot is to establish that Yoko is the communa of this island right like she's sitting there and she has the the signal uh, the symbol of the digrendon on her jacket which owns and the 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 way she has wrapped her sword like cloud in kingdom hearts uh and the way that the the uh, uh firing of the projectiles has lit the actual material on fire is so striking it's fucking awesome uh and there's a, another great shot where they are intentionally paralleling yoko tying her hair with with kamina grabbing his cape there's a shot where Yoko uh, gathers her hair up into like action, uh, you know, hair. I'm I'm sorry, I'm a man. I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> um, I don't know shit for shit. I'm a terrible man. But anyway, the uh, uh, the the shot is clearly um, supposed to be uh, a a uh, mirror of when Kamina does the same thing when he grabs, you know, it, I I presume his his dad's smelly corpse cape and and he puts it on. Uh, and, and I thought that's, oh, that's so cool. It's such a great visual storytelling for this character who I really like. But it, it's completely sort of deflated by the rest of the scene where, it, like, I'm just not sure what the the show is trying to tell me about Yoko's body in these moments. Am I supposed to like this? It, it, yeah, it seems like I- no good deed on her part will go unsexualized. You've right. seen Fight, you guys have seen Fight Club, right? 
It might have been a while. But yeah, you've seen it's been Fight a while. Club. It's been a while. It's been a long time. But I there's a very it famous in a basement, and you guys will know which one I'm talking about. <laughs> there's a very famous monologue with uh, Tyler Durden, Brad Pitt's character, and he is a film projectionist. And this is back when you know prints can't, were physical prints as opposed to on hard drives, so you could like literally splice in whatever you want. And he constantly like his little jokes splices in you know pornographic bits, but you can only see it for a split second. That's what I feel like almost the directorial impulse of so many episodes of Gurren Lagann are that. They are not confident in their storytelling. Well, this is a generous read that they're not confident enough in their storytelling where they have to put these little bits in. The alternative read is that they're just so horny that they feel the need to objectify their female characters so much. I just, yeah, I, I, the, the thing that bums me out about it is, I, I you know, I, I'm not the sort of person who was lucky enough to to watch media with their parents. I don't think any of us really had that relationship with our with our parents. But no, especially um, not the yeah, media I was consuming. Put a big asterisk on James Bond films, and then otherwise, yes, I've not watched right. any media with my parents. Well, like I, you know, for me, uh, I, I definitely didn't get the opportunity to much. But even the the stuff I would call like tame, right? Like Miyazaki films, for example, I'd be like, okay, yeah, anyone can watch these Miyazaki films. There definitely still exists, especially for like Mononoke, for example, which I feel like is the Someone could fight me on this. Maybe Spirited Away is now, but Mononoke to me is like the one I've heard the most about throughout history and time. But maybe it's because of the circles we walk in. Um, I, it's for most people Miyazaki films, whatever your fave. It's like the whatever day of the week it is. It constantly changes. Totoro right. generally seems to be like the gold standard because of its length and uh, it's how precise it is. I just I, what's striking to me about those is that, that in situations where the story is, you know immaculate and and being told in a way that is is you know stunning to behold people can get caught up on things like oh why can we see this girl's underwear now and it's like uh, because it's it's just they just don't care in the same way or it's it's just a trope or it's telling us something different it doesn't mean the same thing like but that's what sticks out to people because of visual storytelling right like and so you're gonna walk away from this you're not gonna walk away from it being like uh fucking yoko owns you're gonna walk away from it being like this was another opportunity for like (laughs) you know like titty jiggle right and and that's kind of a shame i'm not saying this as a like uh, Yoko is here for our sexual objectification, but I. It seems like the show creators feel like that. Like it. It, it does. Again, I want to reference Austin Walker and his criminal horniness uh, 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 speech from Xenoblade Chronicles Two, because it really does feel like that. Like there's this disconnect between what's happening in the text and what the the show chooses to show us. Uh, P, uh, not you're not PMC. PMC is our other host, Stephen Hero. You had some thoughts about Yomako Sensei as a, as a as a teacher. Uh, I wanted to know since you we we have a real professional sort of insight here uh, as a teacher. What did you think of Yomako Sensei's uh, techniques? Well, I will say a few things. Number one, I'm a high school teacher. My wife is an uh, elementary school teacher, and uh, I will say, but she generally she we've been together for many many years. She's walked in on some shit before. I play a lot of I watch a lot of anime. Play a lot of Japanese RPG. I just yeah. played through 60 hours of Vagina Bones, even though those were removed from the American version. Right. You know, occasionally I'm embarrassed with what's on the screen. For some reason, though, and maybe that's because she is a teacher, I was the most embarrassed when she walked in on a few scenes here. Not necessarily the teaching scenes, but just a few of the ways in which, I don't know, the quote-unquote maternal teacher is portrayed. But I will say, as a teacher, you know, Yoko's very empathetic. She's strict. It's like severely so at times. She isn't afraid to dish out some corporal punishment or the threat of corporal punishment, you know, with the, ch- the chalk to inspire fear in her students. Um, there's a few good gags. 
Yoko lobbing the dodgeball at Nakim's bullies and clearly taking pleasure in it. Um, sometimes some of her teaching practices are a bit too difficult to stomach. Uh, the bit with the chalk I said before. Not a lot. That shit won't fly today in 2020, I'll tell you that right now. Uh, Yoko would not receive tenure probably from any school. Uh, pedagogically speaking, you know, I can't speak too... I, I don't have an expert opinion about how an elementary school classroom is run. The last mm. time I was in an elementary school classroom, I was in elementary school. But she's a very eclectic teacher. I mean, she has them doing a bunch of stuff. Uh, Nakim really takes to the sculpting that they're doing. Uh, I like the fact that she really gets into cooking for the students. That's something that wouldn't happen in elementary school. That would happen in a cafeteria, but she puts on... Again, this is also slash, you know, kind of... I don't know. It commodifies her as, like, an object to consume visually, but she, you know, changes outfits when she's serving, you know, her chef's outfit when she's consuming. I'm not consuming when she's dishing out food for her students, but she definitely takes a lot of pleasure in it there. Uh, she's very fond of the lecture format, like straight lecture, which, to be honest, I'm kind of fond of too, but that's very much frowned upon in educational circles today. You know, if you walked into an elementary school in 2020, chances are this teacher wouldn't be standing up in front of a blackboard or even like a smart board or a projector lecturing as the students take notes or answer math problems. They would probably be working in small groups, and maybe a few students would be working more closely with the teacher. But other than that, she seems definitely engaged. The, my issue with her as a teacher is that we don't know, and we, going back to the issue early, we don't know why she's a teacher. And I have my own reasons, of course, but I really think that the show needed to linger on this question and explore it more fully. Like, I know why the fight scene happens in the back half of the episode. I really didn't need that fight scene. I needed more time with Yoko exploring her own identity. And I really needed the text to be explicit because it kind of feels like Yoko gets shortchanged. I mean, she has grown on paper from you know the first half of the show to the second half of the show, but Simone, the show seems to prioritize Simone's growth. Like he's a clear synthesis of his like earlier, slightly brainier self with common as bravado. But Yoko, her earlier self, I think is relatively clearly defined. You know, she's she has a Spitfire attitude. She has to. She's grown up fighting for every scrap that's been given to her. Right. She's rugged, but her. What the next part of that equation, what she synthesizes with and culminates into, I don't, I really can't honestly tell. Because when you think, of, how does she, I don't know, reflect these changes? She gives a little lecture when she's beating the crap out of those, uh, you know, rogue gamen, but that's it. It seems like she can talk the talk, but she can't walk the walk. The bandits, yeah. No, I, yeah. I agree that the, the, uh, the show is uh, really taking for granted that we understand. Or, you know, and this is what I'm afraid of. It feels like the show maybe feels like we don't care. Like, this is something I I, I don't want to generalize in the same way that I I maybe generalized when we talked about Pat Labor 2. It's funny that you mentioned Pat Labor 2 of all weeks because I am deep in the ship as I'm writing an essay on Pat Labor 2. I'm like deep in Pat Labor 2. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. Well, it's the same shit, right? And I agree with you. Don't get me wrong. Where, like, there's some, like, integrity that will be lost if, if we ha- were had insight into, like, her, her, her choices, her inner monologue about, like, ah, yes, like, I would, I would kill for a more, it, 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 uh, like, episode explicit sort of version of what we got in the preview of the last episode, which is to say that, like, they are in the preview explicit about Yoko choosing to teach as a sort of expression of the philosophy that Kamina was, was trying to impart. Like, mm-hmm. this is the thing it, on my second watch that I, I came to understand about this episode is that it, it, as it turns out, as much as I wish it were this thing, it is not really an episode about Yoko as much as it is about 
getting to the center of the Tootsie Roll of the ty- the Digrone Brigade's like philosophical core, right? In in the first half of the show, the the scope was such that there was like an evil king and a mutant enemy empire, and even though there that that scope is huge, there was a sort of sense of like. A, a lid to it, a cap to what they were doing. And so it felt like there was like, okay, we're fighting for humanity, but humanity means something very specific and limited in this case, which is to say like the possibility for humanity to grow at all. Right. Um, but with that battle being won, you could argue that that the scope of that has, has changed, right. That, that they can't be true to that anymore because humanity exists as a completely different entity, right? Humanity exists in multiple ways. Like that's actually part of the struggle that we, we saw in the initial episodes of the time skip, which is that there are some humans who are choosing to live underground just out of their choice. Right. Um, and, and that represents a, a group of humans, right? It, you know, that, that's not who Yoko will be fighting for in this case when we're, when we're done with this episode. Um, but what this episode is making a pitch for is that, you know, we spend a lot of time with Mausha and Nakim and Nakim's, uh, uh, you know, drama, and and part of it is to provide a second person way for us to intuit what Yoko is trying to achieve here, and also, in my opinion, to pitch us the audience on this is the thing the Digern Brigade is fighting to maintain that the 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 freedom, the space, the ability to, for children to have these dramas in in the, the the open outdoors and to climb trees and to be places uh it is what the digrone brigade was really fighting for what we're what we're learning here is is that it is a more philosophical sort of freedom that is at the core of what the digrone brigade do even if they wouldn't be able to put the words to it that, that i'm putting right now maybe liron could maybe roshiu could um but the the thing that this show is talking or is trying to basically pitch us on through the the easy living through uh yoko's relatively small but but cozy and reasonable living spaces through the the kiddos that love her through the the uh you know only in fiction does teaching look this like you know uh, uh like actually approachable and and engageable and and fulfilling no offense i'm not saying that teaching is not fulfilling it just seems like this is like most like careers a, a pretty like sanitized version of what this yeah i mean it's, it's the single room schoolhouse pastoral sort of take on it you know it certainly is yeah. very idealized but the the, the thing that that I, I think it is successful on is really establishing the the there is the as an audience you you can sort of relate to our protagonists like goal to succeed in an abstract way where you're just like i i want them to succeed because they're good right i'm not deriding that i think that's that's i I, many people just have engaged on that level right um but i think what this episode is trying to do and i think successful even if it, it ends up not doing what i want it to do which is to be about yoko um it's it's about the the idea that uh, there is a inherent value to life being like this that is worth protecting, and that what is as it turns out what the Digern Brigade was about the whole time to Yoko, and and I would argue the fact that the show is pitching it as this to one of the founding members of the the Digern Brigade like Trinity so to speak uh, is I I think uh, uh, convincing, uh, but it definitely took me. 
I, I've seen this episode many a time. I like the show a lot, um, but it was only until this most recent rewatch where I, I came to that conclusion. Do you do you guys think that's fair? Yeah, no, I, I definitely, definitely think that's fair. I think the one the and I think the putting the focus on the you know, the sort of the life around us rather than necessarily uh, Yoko's arc. I think it's kind of a takeaway I had from it too because. Uh, this and the next episode had me th- a lot thinking about. We've already talked about uh, diversity of thought being emphasized as an, important to the show, but also the the phrase sort of like democratization of spiral power. Because when they started paralleling Nakim to Simone, and they, you know they do that very explicitly when they say, "Oh, it's Nakim the tree climber," you know, very yes, very big call out. And um, and I think one of the things that stuck out to me about that was that uh, at one point I think Roshu. Tied. Remember the discussion with Roshu and Simone about the effect of common is death, and I think that Roshu kind of viewed uh, their their struggle or bad things that happen to them as being like mm, an essential ingredient to our greatness. And I think this episode kind of punches back at that idea because it's like you can be a carefree child living under the blue sky, and you can still you know be actualized. You can still be be who you are. You don't need to. You don't need you know constant war to do that and i also think as another comment uh you know i always love to tie our our reads to current political day things but i also appreciate that you know that that yoko wants better things for the next generation she's not you know she's not insisting that they have to suffer the same things that she did or anything like that right Uh, certainly some people in our current society could learn from that a lot yeah you know, actually, how this episode works. I'm going to walk some of this talk back, but just for funsies. If we were having, if Roshio is on trial for crimes against humanity, and I needed to present evidence to get him locked up, I would bring in episode 21. I'd show episode 21 to the jurors. And they would see, hopefully, a few things. They would realize how classist his selection was. And I, I think this is inadvertent on Roshio's part, but he only, well, maybe not too inadvertent, but we'll get to there in a second. Because he, he only takes the well-off who have means to get or live in communist city. And this whole episode really does highlight the over 800,000 people that he willingly dupes. Dupes might be too strong a word in your minds, but he does. He dupes them purposefully, and he leaves them to die. And then I would show them. I'd call Yoko up to the stand, and I'd say, what did Rosu tell you or ask you in that video message? And then she would hopefully say, you are someone to ought to survive. And they'd say, Yoko, please repeat that. And hopefully at this point, the, the jurors would gasp because that really says a lot about Roshu's character, that you are someone who ought to supply, uh, survive, which was really – that really did stand out. I'm really glad at that point that Yoko did say, so that's your politics, huh? Fuck off. Well, I do want to – I do want to, I, I do want to uh, put a, a, a magnifying glass over this moment, right, because – uh, uh, you, you were wondering out loud earlier about the, the, the bandits attacking. And, and for me, the bandits attacking is a reason that Yoko needed to return, right? So Yamako-sensei uh, doesn't ride a scooter and shoot guns and, uh, uh, you know, uh, attack mechs. Like, Yamako-sensei couldn't recognize what that, that mechs were on their way just from the sounds they make. And, and like, that's such a great minor detail that... You know, because of how she grew up, she hears gunmen approaching, and obviously she will she'll know that for the rest of her life, right? 
you know, if the episode was a little bit more about her, I would love for this to be a moment where she realizes, like, she's been kind of, as much as she has been working to improve the, the lives of the, the first generation of, of humans born on the surface, which is what we, we learn in an early conversation in that episode, you know, there is an argument that, that she sort of... You could I, – I don't know if I believe in this necessarily. Like she definitely could have stayed to help with government. But I firmly believe none of these fucks – none of these fucks – except for Roshi who's good at this. Who's good at this job um, should have been in government probably. Like they, they're definitely – their best roles are, are as these heroes. The bandits attacking and, and uh, Yoko being Yoko in that moment – I think obviously we see also in on her Yoko outfit is the uh, the gun phone that that Roshi calls and leaves the message on, um, and that's how she hears that message is as Yoko. There's a moment earlier in the episode because remember this episode starts uh, four thousand years before the last couple episodes we've been watching. Um, there's a moment in this episode where we see the uh, first time that anti spiral Nia. Uh, 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 projects to the world the this anti-spiral human annihilation program um and uh uh there's a moment where she uh reassures the kids she's like hey you know we're gonna we're gonna do what the new government says we're we they you know have faith in them we're, we're gonna get through this and i like that moment because they instantly instantly show us what she's really thinking which is like what the fuck <laughs> like and and i like that though because there is a uh, uh, a a prag uh, a pragmatic sort of reasoning there that I appreciate of you know the immediate concern is reassuring these kiddos like me complaining about my personal feelings about how Roshi has gone about doing some of this is is less important than reassuring the kiddos that that we're probably not going to get smushed by the moon, um, and and this to me this call that you're referencing uh, Stephen Hero uh, and this is the reason why it's the episode title is the final straw is the the moment of like okay uh you know i, I have to come back <laughs> there's there's shit going on i'm going to return um so it, it feels like th- you know other than also like something cool needs to happen in this episode uh it feels like these two w- this is like a one-two punch of uh the 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 role that yoko Littner still has to play that yet yeah, yomaka sensei is is valuable and beloved and you know has already affected the lives of basically all these kids but definitely nakima mausha um one thing i would say as much as i like the teacher yomako sensei stuff as, as i generally do i have a soft spot for your your mystery women your harukos like I, it's problematic as all hell with a capital p but it, it's one of those things that i i would defend even if it's definitely not if it's compromised right um, but I, I would they would receive a whole lot more credit for me in this episode if Yoko even spoke to Mausha once, you know, like it, it, it's really frustrating to me how much of the focus is on Nakim as like the like the boy that the special like young young woman teacher likes. Like there, there's such an angle to that already that I'm I'm really like I'm not even saying it's a sex thing. I'm not saying that Yoko wants to fuck the kid. I'm saying that the <laughs> the uh, that there is an angle to this. Right. That is in the vein of hot teacher, but isn't necessarily about the sex aspect of it as it is about how the most important thing in the world. And this might seem hypocritical (laughs) about someone who loves taking top of girl in the gun, but the the most important thing in the world are little boys, 
you know, <laughs> the, and and their feelings and how they, you know, uh, uh, like Mausha doesn't do anything objectively wrong in this episode, and she's not really like demonized per se. Uh, but I wish that the, in the way that that Yoko, uh, uh, pardon me, Yamaka Sensei has advice for Nakim uh, and how she can relate to Nakim because they've both lost loved ones. I wish she had something with Mausha. It would feel like she would have a relationship to women that wasn't purely antagonistic. Like, you know, I'm not saying it is purely antagonistic. It's just that she doesn't really talk to the black siblings and the, the arc with Nia was an arc, right? And even now, it doesn't seem like she had, like, a close relationship with Nia. It's just one of those things that would have helped me feel more comfortable about what we were being shown. And, and to trust that it was, like, in good faith, right? Yeah, I definitely completely agree. It could have been a, another casualty of, like, Ameishi's breakneck pace. Like, I remember if it talks about earlier, Nakashima wanted to spend more time in the village in episode one, which I think was a great decision that we didn't. But here, if you consider that the back half of the episode and how we're, like, getting the team back together, there's only, what, like, eight minutes you could spend on the island. So by that structure, they didn't have too much time to work with. I just wish they might have stretched that eight minutes out into the entire episode, even though it would have slowed the progression down. Like, for example, I wish there was a Star Well, there are Star Wars films without lightsaber fights, but, like, every Star Wars film needs a lightsaber fight. Every Gurren Lagann episode needs a mech battle, and I kind of wish that this was the episode that showed us that's not necessarily the case. I'm sure there's an episode that there's not a mech battle. I can't remember. I, I definitely feel like... I, I'm glad you brought up how the, the last third of the episode is... Like in an it basically returning to the main plot. Um, I definitely feel like this could have waited. This could have been the start of the next episode, and we could have had more time with Yoko. Um, but uh, we we could talk about that stuff now. I think we're we're just about done with Yamako Sensei and uh, Korahime Island. Uh, did did were there any other notes before we start talking about the return to Communist City? No, I think I covered mine. Now you're good. All right, so Yo- Yo- uh, uh, Yoko returns to Communist City. I like her, uh, like her sunglasses. Shoutouts. It's the same orange color, so that's that's some good shit. Um, I like how she stole Keaton's thunder. Good. Uh, always do that when when possible. Uh, uh, so it, we see Yoko in the moment where we saw her last with uh, confronting Anti Spiral Nia. Uh, there's not much of a follow up under that. Uh, Anti Spiral Nia is like, well, bye. And it kind of just, you know, pixelates away. Fuck this shit, I'm out. Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, and so uh, Simone is kind of brought up to speed. And, and, you know, it's in a very, like, listical way where it's like, uh, uh, everything's fucked. You're fucked. I'm fucked. Uh, this is fucked. And Simone's like, great. Just how I like it. And um, uh, at this moment, Viral speaks up and he's like, oh, you're, you're fucking the same as ever, huh? And, and Yoko's like, wait, <laughs> fucking Viral's here? <laughs> um, and uh, I was thinking of UPMC when uh, Simone asks for Yoko's gun uh, and he unloads on Viral in a, in a moment where, uh, I, you know, if I didn't know what the next shot was, and I wasn't saying that you didn't know, but I was thinking about like, Visually, it's very unclear that he didn't just fucking murder her. <laughs> like, and like the next immediate shot is showing, oh, okay, he shot his like shackles or whatever. But the way it's framed, it really just looks like like Simone just like cold as ice, just executing morale in the fucking prison. And like, I just want to be clear, like that that's not just my crazy brain, right? That definitely came off to other people. Like, wait, what? <laughs> oh no absolutely in, in fact what's that's i mean i we already talked about it in the marin but 
that's a thing that the Iron Blooded Orphans main character actually does. Yeah, I could see that. Is just cat people like that. And so I was like, oh, well, all right. <laughs> this, this isn't how I remembered it. <laughs> oh, no, wait, wait. <laughs> so, um, Viral is rescued along with Simone. Simone is reunited with the Digrendon. Um, and he, we basically, it almost instantly, in a way that, that you, you could argue is... In other stories, this would be bad, right? It would be bad that we have returned to status quo this quickly with the Daigarendon. Um, but the 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 I think the idea here that we're we've reached an emotional low for the past like I don't know from sixteen to twenty one, right? Um, and now it, this is the time where we're gonna start we're gonna start that swing. We're we're gonna be doing the uh, uh, something different. And we learned lots of interesting things coming up. So something I wanted to discuss, we, we were talking about how we were all kind of fascinated with, with Liron having so much faith in Roshu. Um, and uh, I, I propose that, that this episode reveals that uh, actually Liron just had his own plan and didn't give a shit what anyone else was doing. <laughs> that, that Liron, that no matter what, Simone was going to make it to space. Because Liron has made some rockets. He's been keeping the, the Gurren Lagan in shape. That's what Leite tells us that this is this is courtesy of Liron. So, uh, you know, I just fuck the government is what Liron says. <laughs> well, I, I feel like Liron here is acting in like the best tradition of Star Trek engineers, right? Where yes. like he has just completely disregarded his, bo- his superior's instructions and just sort of decided things on his own. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, a search for Spock when like Kirk steals the Enterprise. Right. It's very much. I think PMC is exactly right to call out specifically the like hyper romantic version of what an engineer is. That's from Star Trek, and and I only call it that because I love that. It's a great trope. Yeah, um, I agree. And, and the fact that Liron is like the the Avengers version of that, where he's just the the most hyperbolic version in many ways, is is truly a delight. Especially in the start of the next episode, where maybe I, I have I haven't loved Liron more than in the next the start of the next episode, um, but uh, Liron is able to uh, deck out the gunmen with with space gear, uh, which appears to make them, uh, uh, you know, obviously it will give them that blue sphere that we see allows space flight, but also it seems to make them awesomer. Like the designs appear to to be, uh, 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 there seem to be in the way that um, Gundam Wing has your your initial five Gundams, and then the the uh, uh, upgraded versions of them, and then the custom versions we see in. Uh, 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 oh my God! What happened to my brain? I almost called it Stardust Crusaders, and I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> Hollands. That's the word you're looking for. Hollands. Endless, endless, uh, endless, endless, endless duel. That's the one, right? Endless that's duel. <laughs> endless waltz. Thank you. Jesus, fuck. Endless salts. It's, yeah, endless salts. That's me right now. It's me, your host of Mechanations, Endless Salts. Um, uh, getting back on track, though, uh, the, the Digron Brigade make it up to space. Um, something that I appreciate. Uh, have, have either of you. Uh, I know at PMC when I lived with you, I definitely talked about this a lot because I'm weird. But have either of you seen the stage show Les Miserables? I have enough cultural context to follow you. I've heard songs. I've seen so, the Hopper adaptation, but I haven't seen or Hooper adaptation. Is it Hopper? It's Hooper. Hoop. Fuck. Fuck. Played played a medley of it in high school in the band. Okay, so you'd be familiar with the confrontation, right? The, yeah. the the piece where Valjean and Javert sing at each other and, and it's at the same time because they're sing yelling at each other because they're in love. So mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about 
the conversation specifically when Simone and Varal are flirting. My favorite part about Simone and Varal flirting in front of the girl in Lagan is that Yoko calls it out instantly. He's like, she's like, we we got we, we got stuff get, we to do. Go. <laughs> <laughs> you got to get in this van, loser. <laughs> we got shit to do. I gotta say though, Varal piloting the girl in Lagan uh, owns. Like you know, I don't want to. I, I feel like uh, I, when we use owns in this like case, what we're really referring to is a, a sort of visceral, like this this fucking rules. Like it, it's not really a logical sort of like ah oh, yes, this this creates this emotional reaction as much as like no, it, the, the fucking owns. Um, the the logic of Viral being as much of a father of the Gurren Lagan as Kamina is super good and definitely not lost on Viral. Uh, there is a way that he he is... He talks about how... It's it's pretty straight. Um, he talks about how uh, the idea of it is kind of insulting to him, but his like his body is horny for piloting the Gurren It's really, really good. Um, and th- I love this idea of the... You know, this is a classic, right? Where you have your... your lovable your affable villain who has finally found their way into like the the okay to enjoy their hijinks team you know or or the ability for them to interact in their normal villainous shitty ways but on a team that we like you know i'm like off the top of my head elam garrick right elam garrick anytime he's on the the fucking good guy side it's like oh this is gonna be great (laughs) and and you know one of my favorite quotes there's a, a writer who discussed Elam Garrick from Deep Space Nine. And, and one of the things he talked about is how uh, Elam Garrick has never used a stun setting on a phaser. Uh, and I love that as a character. If, wa- if you watch episodes where Garrick phasers people, <laughs> they dead. <laughs> like, it's one of those things, you know, you have to watch Star Trek to understand even, like, people don't get murdered on Star Trek. Not really. Unless Elam Garrick's there. <laughs> then they dead. But this moment, this episode ends with a... Uh, a Simone Viral, uh, what I might even call like a, a Kamina poem. Uh, wh- what this is is a, a classic uh, shonen action henshin speech, a, a transformation speech. This is a, a common sort of uh, a tokusatsu thing, right? Where uh, before a transformation, there is a there is usually some kind of like I don't want to say prose, but there's a structure of a thing you would do or say before the transformation begins in order to emotionally prep the audience for how the rest of the the, the scene is going to go. Right? Um, and and off the top of my head, you you can think of things like uh, Sailor Moon, right? The, the the way that that there are like specific and and in English dubs they would what they would do is they would like not satirize it or parody it but it, they would become satire or puns because you know in Japan wordplay is is pretty common but you know as we've discussed doesn't doesn't really quite translate um, and so playing with that structure of language I think is just a more common sort of beat or choice when it comes to the the sort of action storytelling. Uh, uh, genre i guess so this is not as far as in my experience goes i feel like this is a thing that is pretty persistent through this sort of action show i mean i I couldn't i could think of examples but do you guys feel like i'm i'm exaggerating or i'm off the mark here do you feel like you feel like it's like yes this is a this is a thing oh definitely and the one thing i really like about this scene is it it maybe highlights simone's greatest strength which is his empathy like we talked i talked about earlier that synthesis between his younger self and his older self and how yoko necessarily doesn't have that growth or at least that explicit growth and 
this empathy, especially if you contrast it with Rashu, is his greatest strength. He can look beyond class, race, ethnicity, I suppose, and he could lock hands with someone who was an outsider, who was an enemy, in order to come to some form of cooperation, fighting for the same goal. Seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Which not everyone the show has. I don't want to put too much fine of a point on it, but uh, if you go watch episode eight, uh, he is he is directly responsible for Kamina's death. Like he he is one of the two mechs. Like he is the one holding the Gurren down as the MILF stabs Kamina. Like that, it, Viral is directly responsible for that happening. And and Simone, it doesn't even come up. It's not. We can assume that he's thinking about it, right? Uh, but it's not something that he brings up in this moment. I, I definitely want to put a pin in in Simone's empathy because it is. I think one of the most important aspects of the next episode, even if it's yeah. not focused on um, the, the next episode and the episode following is going to be about the empathy and where it's, why it's important. Um, but yeah, there is a big speech. Fucking Viral is, is a killer at these instantly. And I buy that. That seems right. Like I can think of, of fictional characters who would be instantly good at this. Like, uh, like Martok from deep space nine would be fucking awesome at this. Uh, you know, uh, I mean, the Spiral King chose him to be his like spokesperson. Yeah, we'll see. Actually, some interactions between uh, Viral and Lord Genome in the next yeah. episode that I think are really interesting. Um, and there is—I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this yet, especially since the show will bring it up. But I think it's interesting, and and you could almost call it like hubris that that Simone chooses a pilot for the Gurn Lagan who cannot produce spiral power, who who will not contribute to the spiral tower totals, maybe. Um, you know, uh, this is a thing. The spiral power rankery does not matter. This is this is not an important, you know, logical thing. But it's something I want to talk about in the future. But yeah, uh, they they flex, and the power of their flex will take us into the next episode. Uh, but first, I think I'm gonna flex into this this uh, this white castle here for for a couple of, of drinks and sliders. Here we go. Dab on the castle. <gasps> it's my diet Kaiser. Who the hell is in it? Now hang in there, Grot Pearl. Mass production models have to show their pride, too. But 22, 22 is called, This is my final duty. Thanks to the machinations, A of the Dicarandon, spearheaded by Liron and followed through by Yoko, Simone is in space with the Gurn Lagan, where capitalism won't find him. Uh, the tide of the battle against the anti-spiral forces protecting the human annihilation device turns almost instantly. The Daigarendon are in their element, fighting against impossible odds for the sake of humanity, aided by the Grapperls in their struggle against absolute despair. To that end, Simone and co-pilots of Viral and Buta combine the Gurn Lagan with the Ark Gurn, forming the Ark Gurn Lagan, easily overcoming the anti-spiral fleet. The moon is still on the course to collide with the Earth, and despite Ark Gurn Lagan's overwhelming power, there's only so much it can do to slow the fall of the fucking moon. Roshi orders a last-second retreat if they are unable to slow it for long, swearing that he will do whatever it costs, even at the cost of the scorn of his loved ones, to protect the lives on board. Thankfully, Lord Genome provides an answer. The human annihilation device is actually another piece of Lord Genome tech that the anti-spirals have taken for their own, a warship known as the Cathedral Terra. Simone journeys to activate it, but is confronted by the specter of anti-spiral Nia. She claims she is trying to inflict absolute despair, but Simone, reject, re, Simone rejects that perspective entirely, offering instead how she came to him as her own way of asking for assistance and to help prepare humanity for the struggle that lay ahead. 
The logic of this causes anti-spiral Nia to relent, allowing the mask to fall away and reveal the character we know and love, who asks Simone if Simone will come to get her from the anti-spiral homeworld. Of course, he responds, who the hell do you think I am? She fades away, leaving Simone and Varalambuta alone. Victory belongs to Daigarendon, but not everyone is ready to celebrate, as a lone figure slinks away into darkness and despair. So, 22. Uh, 22 is uh, Gurren Lagann's back. The, the mech, the show, the emotion, the, the philosophy. Uh, we are... The, uh, the five-episode uh, anti-spiral uh, absolute despair arc is over. Uh, and the, the space opera uh, battle for humanity has begun. Uh, what's up, Gunbuster? Uh, especially now, um, when as we see more of what space is going to look like, um, the Gunbuster stuff is becoming very, at least for me, ex- explicit. It's clear that some of the, I'm thinking of the, the crazy alien ships and how colorful and wonderful they were in Gunbuster. The anti-spirals are definitely exhibiting a different logic where uh, the, the aliens in Gunbuster had a biological and, and sort of like, uh, uh, I would call it like Umbrella Corporation weaponry sort of feel to it, where it was biological, but it felt designed, right? Like, I'm thinking of those two giant pillars that they, they tried to crush the Gunbuster with in the awesome sequence where the Gunbuster blows them both up because the Gunbuster is the best. This, you know, the start of this... I'm very susceptible <laughs> to the beats in the in this episode. The start of this where the power of Simone and Varal's flexing is so much that it it destroys half the fleet instantly uh, is the shit. This is the shit you should watch Gurren Lagann for. Uh, if if you can watch this beat and, and appreciate it, you're going to enjoy the rest of the show because the rest of the show is going to be delivering this kind of, uh, uh, you know, exuberant sci-fi hyperbole, right? Um, we, we're going to get here, uh, a, you know, the moon is a, is a secret space station. Shout outs to that, uh, uh, definitely Star Wars inspired little CG graphic of the moon with like a tube through it into its core. I was like, okay, what's up Death Star? That's some good shit. You know, Star Wars is cool. I agree. We get, uh, all, all the mechs we could, we could ask for. Uh, the gunmen have never looked better. Uh, the uh, Stephen Hero, I was thinking of you throughout this in, this entire initial sequence where the Diger and Don have their first real sortie into space combat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was also thinking of PMC because uh, he's you know, Gimme is living that fucking uh, mass produced mech life and and is constantly shouting out, you know, mass produce. We we've got our fucking pride too. And I'm like, you know what? PMC sees you, Gimme. <laughs> like he's I really he's do out. though. Yeah, I'm watching. <laughs> No, they do look great. Like a special care was taken to like really shade in those outlines in classic Ameishi style, and each one gets their own little money shot too, which is cool. What's interesting to me is how effectively you know, and and this is only going to work if you're into the gunmen as as a sort of like ah the the weaponry of our heroes, right? Like if if they were instead like a spear or a sword or two shields or something, like that's sort of what these gunmen think what i think of them when i see them is is how they are uh, uh, indicative of the individual gurn Lagan or Digurn brigade member you know jorgen and Balimbo obviously have that sort of dual mech with the, the the two arms coming out of the skulls and uh Machen has that awesome sort of uh uh i i want to say swordsman one where it definitely has a, a sort of ranged um shoulder nipple <laughs> projectors something uh, like know. that yeah yeah <laughs> that's a mechanical term yeah um uh, and uh, how uh, D- Dayaka 
uh, shout outs to Dayaka, my man in this episode who, um, one, I, I really love how he takes on the role that Nia took on in that one previous episode where he is acting as the sort of the mediator, uh, in this, the moment where he says like, you know, everyone relax, this, this battleship could take more than this. And not only that, but my men will see us through this. Like the moment where Dayaka refers to the Daigorendon as his men, like I've never felt more connected to this character as like, man, Dayaka's the fucking best. And then when he's mad that someone else is driving his mech, <laughs> that's, that's true. That's true. Big mood. Shout outs. Dayakaiser, by the way, is an amazing reveal for what that thing is called. Oh, the name was, yeah, the first name. It's fucking incredible. That mech uh, has some real, like, I don't know, dad bob, dad bod vibes going to it. Kind of reminds <laughs> me of, like, Jet's Hammerhead. It definitely but With, has, like, the like, elongated snout. I, again, I don't have the... It's got that square it. jaw, you know? Yeah. There's something about it that feels um, like a gummy ship. That's what I think of when I think of the Diakaiser. It reminds me of the gummy ship aesthetic. Uh, and not in a bad way. I fucking love gummy ships. I might be the only one. Um, yeah, I think you are. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, fair, fair enough. Uh, this is a burden I must bear. Uh, but <laughs> this is when 20- me and PMC reach across the aisle and uh, grab hands and share fellowship, just like Simone and uh, Varel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that. It's the, um, <laughs> it's the commando meme, but it's PMC and Steven Hero <laughs> making fun of Ignis. <laughs> well, specifically, um, gummy ships. The tyranny of gummy ships. Uh, so. You know, one of the, the 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 way this episode starts starts is uh, I I like it's on the nose, but I, I think it, it's indicative of of what we we've been trying to kind of arrive at with the uh, um, uh, uh, absolute despair arc, which is that the moment where Roshu I don't want to say remembers how spiral tech works, but there's definitely a moment where he's like. What? Why? Why would human emotions matter? And he's like, "Oh, I, wait. I guess they fucking do, actually." <laughs> and and this is not me ragging on Roshiu, as much as I think it, it is a a demonstration of what's effective about the absolute despair that they're trying to impart, right? And what twenty two is ultimately about, in my opinion, uh, is the the reveal that we get when Simone confronts Anti Spiral Nia, which is that. The truth of what Antispiral Nia was trying to do matters a little bit less. God, this is dark to say in 2020. The truth of what Antispiral Nia was trying to do matters a little bit less than the perspective that you apply to it. Um, it is kind of what what Simone is arguing that it, it, that ultimately what Antispiral Nia did was what Antispiral Nia did. Like Antispiral Nia was like, here comes the Mugan. Here comes some fucking more Mugan. Here I am at your court. Neener, neener, neener. Um, and, and I think effectively when Roshiu is the one who's putting together like, oh, these were all calculated acts to create a, a cumulative despair effect, <laughs> which is my new Roshiu-headed band. Um, but uh, when Simona instantly is our next perspective and is the one who go, well, well, instead, though, uh, you know, what you ended up doing was preparing us for the long run here. And, and I was ultimately ready for what we needed to do together here. And th- the idea that this, the logic of this kind of breaks through to Nia in a way where it's very, very clear, at least to me, my read on the conversation between Simone and, and Nia uh, was a continuation of my general idea that the anti-spirals as a 
uh, as a character, as a villain, as an idea, are, are and you know the despair they're trying to inflict as sort of representative of a f- kind of depression. Um, uh, we, I talked a lot about Lord Genome and how I felt as though the the oppression he was he was submitting the rest of the world to was an extension of his personal depression. That you know we are now way past the point where you can do it. I really encourage people to go watch Parallel Works uh, Eight which is about Lord Genome's backstory. And I think it, it very clearly depicts why Lord Genome would spend his life the way he does. Um, and the ultimate argument here that, uh, well, while those things did truly happen, my perspective on them is such that it, I, you know, it just doesn't hit me in the same way that it hits Roshiu, right? I, I see it this other way. And for it to take upon itself the ghost of what Roshi was saying about Kamina, but without the cruelty, with the empathy... Right. It's it's an idea of like, oh, you know, you weren't trying to hurt me on purpose. What you what you did was was helping us and and me in the long run. And I trust that you have my my best, you know, intentions in mind. And the proof of that is that you're wearing my ring that I gave to you. That is our ring. That is proof of our relationship. Um, And this read to me as depression in, in the way that depression can really convince you that certain things are true when they're not. Uh, when, you know, depression is really about your perspective being out of your control and your ability to actualize, you know, I mean, obviously this is different for everybody, right? Everyone's emotional experience with, with depression is basically different, even if it follows under some of the same trappings. But this felt real to me in my experience of, of dealing with depression myself or speaking with folks who, who also deal with depression often, the way that in a, a moment, there is a sort of like recognition, uh, a sort of light shining through. And we see Nia as we knew her for like a bit, even though it's very clearly anti-spiral Nia, right? She is still made up of, of digits or whatever of ones and zeros. She still knows the shit that she does about the anti-spiral homeworld and stuff like that. It, it's just, we see that, that maybe this isn't possession as much as it is just, despair just not not really connecting to the idea that anything else could happen that it could only go one way you know uh this is uh i'm just curious if if you guys connect to that idea that i'm i'm bringing up here that there's there's something to be said about nia not being possessed as maybe she is just despondent uh did you guys feel that or or do you think that i'm i'm giving too much credit to what is clearly like possessed princess (laughs) in peril (laughs) I mean, when it comes to that sort of character type, or, or you know, is it is it possession sort of a foreign body, or or is it some kind of reordering? I I think I, I don't know. That I necessarily had to read myself on it because I, I I think I sort of to say that it's uh, you know possession. I almost feel like it more like like a reordering is kind of how I, how I look at it. And so maybe in terms of expressing that reordering emotionally, I think your your read uh, would make a lot of sense there. Because you know, it's kind of like, you know, let's say for example, if you got uh, hypothetically uh, pos- your mitochondria took over, you know, in your body, and yeah, like, I'm... is that is that possession? You know, or, it, I don't think it's really important. The, the important thing here is that you know some other impulse has sort of drowned you out, and certainly in this case, in the context of Goron Lagan, you have kind of come to believe that there is a, a universe of possibility and that in this case it's it's a state of depression that there is no other possibility that this perspective is forced upon you uh right. which you know is, is something i think is kind of the, the unifying theme of the episode 
That's an interesting pull because I thought, and I definitely like your read. One thing I kept thinking about is I keep thinking about the anti-spirals agenda and what they want to achieve. Maybe not necessarily the absolute destruction of every single human being, but they definitely want to send a message similar to Guam to stamp out the seeds of any future revolution. So I started thinking and doing some little reading on my own. Have you guys heard of Hannah Arendt? She's a pretty well-known Jewish philosopher. Uh, Rose to prominence in post-World War II. And she wrote extensively about revolutions and also totalitarian regimes. She was one of the first writers to basically examine the Soviet Union, the USSR, and Nazi Germany as two totalitarian regimes and basically two sides of the same coin. And one thing that she talked about, and her husband, uh, Heinrich Blücher, he uh, coined the term the anti-political principle, which refers to in order to completely dominate a population, to quell and subdue any future revolutionary spirit, you have to essentially eliminate any space of resistance. You basically have to demoralize a population where they can't even think about conceiving what a revolution would look like. Kind of like late-stage capitalism. I know that's a catch-all term, but the idea that you're living in late-stage capitalism and then there's this malaise, and it's difficult to even conjure the energy to imagine what a world without capitalism would look like. It's very similar to that. And I started thinking about Guam and his propagandistic leanings and how he wanted to videotape and spread that video and disseminate that video to everyone on the planet just how he's going to squash this rebellion. And I kind of think the anti-spirals is the same way. And I think that's an interesting, almost villain, for the Digrendon. All right, if they embody... There's, there's a real depth to this show and its radical politics. And I think that this is a suitable counterweight to their revolutionary idealistic spirit, which I think is cool. It's the opposite of saying, all right, your revolution will be successful if you defeat these hundred soldiers in front of you. And then once you're done, that's it. This is a bit more depth. This is a bit more complex. This is a bit more in-depth. And I really do like that. I would agree. I, I also think there is a... All right. I I wouldn't necessarily say Gurren Lagann is antagonistic towards Evangelion. I, I wouldn't say that. Um, But Neither I do I. think... I, I do think there is a conversation. Like, I still haven't seen Rise of Skywalker, but I have heard that it is uh, antagonistic towards The Last Jedi in a way that definitely makes me not want to see it. Um, uh, is this true, both of you who have seen The Rise of Skywalker? I would view that movie as antagonistic towards The Last Jedi, yes. Okay. I would. I do think that the fan base is largely reading into J.J.'s personal relationship with Ryan Johnson a bit too much. But yes, the film as separate from the creators, yes. I don't want to bring this up necessarily, but it's funny. Okay, let me finish my point first. So there is, I think, a a sort of rejection of, um, what is it called, Stephen Hero, when we all turn into Tang? Uh, Human instrumentality? Yes, thank you. Um, Spoilers, PMC, and everyone else. Wow. Um, (laughs) We're all unified as one. Or consciousness yeah, it's more, combined. It's more complicated than that, but philosophically, the the idea is that it inevitably human consciousness will will form together into a sort of collective that it, that is inevitable and is our ultimate evolution. And we need to learn how to deal with being together on a level that is beyond the physical. It's depressed. It's you know. It's that thing the 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 you saw it today even because uh, there was that um uh man this new event looks wild the Animal Crossing meme that's going around with that classic shot from End of Evangelion which is the 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 landscape of the two Avas in the you know 
uh, uh, this idea is that there's this inevitability to existence, right? That there, that you know, this is something that even Gunbuster can't avoid because in the last episode of Gunbuster, there's that dude, right? Do you remember in episode six? There's that dude who's like, well. What if? Why? Maybe we should just fucking die. Like, why, why do we even fight this big fucking thing? If, if you know, seventy-five million years from now, we're all going to explode anyway. Like, who gives a shit? And like, the anti-spirals are kind of like it's like that guy fell into some kind of cosmic goop and turned into a, a demigod because that seems to be like the driving philosophy of the anti-spirals, right? That that uh, and and I don't think yeah no spiral nemesis has been mentioned so th- that. It, eventually progress will lead to destruction of some kind so that means we should just stop progress period we should freeze to at some point and all progress should be violently instead of solving that problem we will just avoid the problem forever and that sort of uh uh you know uh take feels to me like it is in conversation with evangelion in a lot of ways uh it feels like but i i actually want to save the the rest of this because i we haven't finished Gurren Lagann yet, and Gurren Lagann might have ideas about mortality and inevitability that we have not gotten to yet. But yeah, 22. There's a lot of stuff that happens in this episode. Uh, there's some awesome action all throughout the, the beginning, uh, and we see more of how the anti-spiral tech would function in a, in a combat situation. We've seen a lot of um, laser lines from the Mugan. Well, they'll shoot like a, like a, a, a series of runes or something, or like a squiggly... Uh, and uh, we've seen that we can we can counter and return that with with spiral weaponry weaponry, uh, and we also see so that there's some uh, that the spiral the anti spirals have some Star Fox sixty four technology where they'll like throw a bunch of rectangular prisms at you and you'll have to avoid them and, and not get your R wing blown up. Uh, uh, I enjoyed this the logic of some of the uh, uh, anti spiral geometric designs uh, combating the the sort of comically over-designed uh, Ark Gurren and Gonmen. Uh, were there any highlights you guys wanted to shout out when it comes to the action before we, we discuss uh, the, the Ark Gurren Lagan in the room? That's what I really want to discuss. But yeah, the action's cool. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. I think the, in terms of action, I mean, the only thing I was going to shout out, maybe this is this is after because it really involves the Ark Gurren Lagan, but I did, I did appreciate the... The, the Grab Pearls uh, being dual pilots for the Ark or Lagan later. Oh, yeah. I fucking love that Pacific Rim shit. That's great. I, I really enjoy that. The uh, the Ark or Lagan. All right. So we've got a new mech. Uh, it is... Uh, <laughs> I was about to say same as the old mech. God damn it, PMC. Um, the the Arkgren uh, is a a continuation of the logic we have seen from the first half of the show. This is the first time we have seen the the real evolution of what the Gurren Lagan could possibly get away with, and with the the Arkgren uh, being a possible fusion, and the Arkgren Lagan being, you know, as as in ridiculous as it is, uh, I especially really love the the logic of its transformation sequence and how parts of it just kind of split and and like there it really reminds me of transformers it reminds me of the logic of of watching the the uh because usually and and pmc you can correct me if i'm wrong on this i I did have some transformers toys but not too many but my memory of them is that they 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 came in a transformed state um and you would there would be uh uh instructions for how to untransform them into their robot form or transform them to whatever secondary form and part of the like joy of it a little bit is learning the 
the logic of the transformation, what what kind of physical things you will need to manipulate in order for it to, you know, be a truck or a you know, a stingray or, or whatever shit that, that Starscream is this year. Um, uh, it, it's in it, that the, na- watching... the name of the stingray from Beast Wars is Depth Charge. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Depth Charge. <laughs> You're right. Starscream shows up as Waspinator, I think, in Beast I Wars. So, but anyway, yeah, something like that. Um, Beast Wars. Beast Wars did this perfectly. <laughs> a true um, one, one of those Trek Universal translators right about now. <laughs> but the, the Archeron is. Uh, a a scope of mech that we haven't really dealt with on this show before. So when when we when I'm talking about scope, what I kind of mean in a fun way is that w- when you're dealing with mechs, they're kind of typically a certain size, right? They they are like tanks plus, right? They they are probably smaller than like I don't know a four story building. A lot of times, I'm thinking of like oh, I'm thinking of like a, a full metal panic. Where with the arm slaves are being relatively small, like, uh, and then we have your your Gundams, which are like, uh, I don't know, like four or five tanks stacked on top of each other. Does that sound right as far as yeah, height goes? That's about. Checks out. Um, uh, it, and and now and then the Gurren Lagann is kind of in that vein, right? Like we're thinking like, uh, you, you know, small building sized, right? Is is kind of what the impression that we got because fighting in landscapes and built in, you know, there were mountains that that they were comparable to, perhaps. Um, so they were large, but not like, you know, seen across the landscape large. Like that was that was part of what was striking about uh, Teppelin was the reveal that Teppelin was an enormous gunman. Um, and they even fought with it in its like walking gunman form is that great shot of uh lord genome like doing like the flick or whatever and the the, the enormous fist of teppelin just flicking the the gurn lagan away but now we have it and it's it's ours it's empowering it's the digurn brigades it, it's it's our you know it, it belongs to us it isn't a a, a weapon of fear uh it is in the shape of uh, you know uh, our gurn lagan and and to complete its sort of parallel with the the initial Gurn Lagan transformations. Uh, there's an amazing shot where we see the uh, the bridge of the Ark Gurren uh, uh, come down from the ceiling of where the Gurn Lagan, in a very uh, Xenogears moment, is piloting the Ark Gurren. Uh, uh, you know that shot is is comparable to Kamina or Roshu piloting the Gurren when the drill bit uh, pops up through the ceiling. It's it's on purpose supposed to be sort of invoking that that transformation bit. Um, and God, what a it's so great that this show has that sort of logic possible um, that, that we can call it out and, and it would be for this sci-fi idea of a, of a Star Trek bridge, right? Or, you know, a, a spaceship Yamato sort of bridge. Shoutouts, by the way, forever to Liron. Uh, I didn't get to talk about it yet, but the, the episode starts with a Liron monologue that is uh, very Gynax. This is some uh, this is some Evangelion shit right here for him to... And Gunbuster. I forgot Gunbuster also had a weird intro where we had a bunch of gobbledygook science and also a, a, an underage girl and a professor saying like a weird flirty booze song. Like, I don't know, whatever. Uh, we, we talked about it already, I guess. <laughs> where, where are we now? There's a lot of stuff going on in this episode. We've, we've, uh, basically the art Gurren is great. I love it. Uh, what do you guys think of the art Gurren? I like, the, of course, the ramping up of the sense of scale. The fact that, again, the Gurren Lagan settles in the cockpit as a pilot is just fantastic imagery, and it's just so satisfying to watch when he you know, uses the drill to activate the entire thing. Perfect. 
and it also think, shows you how far mm, we've come too. Yeah. I think the, the sort of details that you've called out in terms of the cleverness around where the Goron Lagan ends up within the Ark Goron Lagan and where the bridge ends up and things like that. I think those are parts I do like. I don't know if I'm necessarily sold on just the, the raw ramping up. I, I At a certain point, I kind of fatigue of that. And I don't think I really like the color scheme, the the external plating of the, the Ark Goron I, the color scheme doesn't work for me. I don't know. It, it just doesn't. And the way it kind of, it almost looks like it's like, um, it's like a, a mech wearing armor that's kind of like bursting out of at the seams. And maybe that's an, intentional, but I feel like it isn't aesthetic. So can I, and I don't want this to come off. I do. I really don't want this to come off as antagonistic, but I, I want to boil down to this. Mm-hmm. Can you, can you explain what you mean by like the escalation doesn't work for you? What, is it is it like a would you describe it as something where it's like I can feel the intention too much and, and I'm resisting that or is it like I think that might be might be a way to look at it. I I think the I think just like getting just I don't know increasing scale just sort of um as like a unit, I, I guess like because what I'm expecting, right, is and I think what we do expect is spiral and continued escalation. That is certainly a part of things, and and to some extent, we we do expect this to continue to escalate. But I think when it's just like it's bigger now, right? Like I, I don't, <laughs> you know, like that's that's it's it's and that's why I'm saying is that the parts where I think we sort of dig into how this interoperates with because our humans are still human sized, right? But so that's what I'm saying. The parts where we get into the cockpit and things like that, I'm like, okay, this is this is clever. I'm I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the visual cleverness of that. That is, do not let me take that away. Right. But the just the sort of like ah, it is bigger now. We'll, we'll just keep going like this. You know, I'm like, eh, you know, yeah. I think that's fair. I think a, a, a really fair thing to bring up is how when it works for you, it, it's when it's clear that they're applying clever logic, right, to arrive at its cool aesthetic beats. I, uh, you know, I, I kind of land on the other end of Arkarin as an aesthetic. Uh, I sort of enjoy, I think there's a lot of different ways you could do the enormous scale mech. I'm thinking of like Big Zom, for example, which is like the silliest shit. Uh, it's, it's like, um, it's like if you took a Zaku head and then just gave it chicken legs and made it enormous, and that's that's the big Zom. Uh, uh, am I? I'm getting that right, right? I'm not fucking that up with something else. I think that's it. I think I'm gonna yeah, refer right. to our Gundam speedrunner here. Yeah, no. I, don't know. I mean, I I thought of you. Yeah, yeah. No, that's exactly right. Big Zom is <laughs> exactly what I described, <laughs> oh right? God, yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I forgot it's... how dumb it looks. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's you know, and and I kind of love that it's dumb looking. Don't get me wrong, but like that that's sort of what I think of when I'm when I'm thinking of like enormous scale mechs in right. other shows, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think the ramping up of scale <laughs> trumps the aesthetics. Like I'll agree with PMC that the aesthetics of the Ark Gurren, I could take it or leave it, but the fact that I think there's something innately humor, human just to see something get bigger and bigger. Like when I'm vacuuming and I'm like, all right, I keep picking up increasingly bigger things. In my mind, I have this sick thought, like, how big can it go in there and still work? Like, could I pick up like a tennis ball? Of course I couldn't. But could I like roll over a tennis ball and will the vacuum suck it up? And there's something innately satisfying just to keep testing those limits. And uh, I and it's testing limits in the show. Yeah, I think that the, it's, <laughs> for me... <laughs> <laughs> For Sorry. me, 
Yeah, PMC's just shitposting us in the mechanician <laughs> to chat while, while we're having this with Big gigantic f- zombs. Ugly though, I'll say that. Yeah, that's what. So like, this is this is what I mean. Is like you you have this approach where I I can kind of see where they were going. Like, okay, if we're we are approximating some kind of reality, we have already established that there's a sort of inhumanity to the human walking tanks, right? Like, there's there's that classic sort of like Austin Walker. Uh, the Gundam is a terrifying monster angle. That, uh, you know, I, I know I've shouted out Austin Walker a couple times here, but I, I see him as the primary like person who pushes that sort of idea that the that the Gundam, the RX seven eight G, is like like a slasher villain in 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 uh, you know, and like I, that's definitely a read that that uh, makes it. I think honest to what it's be what's being portrayed that that sort of like hero's journey of I, I got a really cool gun is is actually fucked up <laughs> um but the the approach here you can see they were like well i guess it would need to be mostly legs <laughs> to hold up the weight of the enormous top end but what i like about the arcuren is how i'm not sold on its aesthetic until a specific shot there's a shot where after it has and i shouldn't make any bones about this after it has punched the the mugan out of space time uh, which owns, <laughs> you know, it's it's a small thing, uh, and I think this is where the line is. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just looking at small zom, and then regular <laughs> zom, and then there's big zom, huge zom, gigantic zom. Anyway, I think this will need to be tweeted out with the uh, with when this podcast comes out. But anyway, understandable. Uh, the the. Uh, <laughs> The shot where uh, hold up, arc- I, I read I read huge zom as horny zom. <laughs> well, we post that image because there's the horny one. There he is, officer. That's him, horny zom. I mean, he's literally horny. <laughs> That's true. That's fair. Um, but I'll get I'll get my mind out of the gutter. I just criticized yeah, the show for moving being on. In the gutter. I, I, now I regret bringing up big zom. I've taken us down a zom hole. Um, but uh the i will say real quick though the art the this this new transformation does serve like a narrative purpose too because by combining um it basically simone takes control from roshu now simone's controlling things roshu is no longer controlling things it's like the i don't know it's like the show grabbing roshu's hands and saying no we actually we got this now well, so I, I think what's what's interesting about it is is the sort of idea that this is the the Arcurans, like true form, right? That that it, it it's it's not a complete machine until it can transform into a mech and punch something out of space time, right? But the shot I was referring to is right after that fight finishes and it and it it, it pushes itself forward to try and and slow the halt of the moon and the way that it it kind of like moves like head first and the rest of its body like lags behind. Like to me, that really sold the scale of it, and that's when I was like, "Okay, I'm I'm into this." Like it, it's not supposed to be in the same vein as heroic as the Gurren Lagann. Like there's a shot at the end of this episode that I love, where the Art Gurren is returning to Earth, and you can see in the background the Cathedral Terra is waiting, like on the horizon, like the the, the new thing that's going to be coming. Uh, but we see the, the like descending from on high the Art Gurren, and in its hand the Gurren Lagann. And and I can couldn't help but think of the idea of mechs as as deities, right? As as like idols, as symbols like this. Like I w- I was thinking about what it would be like to have the the heroes of humanity 
like return like this and for this to be the image of them having successfully defeated the moon like they <laughs> they went up and beat the moon and they found a spaceship underneath and and they're back and they look like this and and not only that but it's the guy that was condemned to death and he's not dead and he's back and he owns now and it's him and his friends and and there was just a a sociological element that this the show definitely wants you to be thinking about because there's a couple times where uh the we will see Dayaka and and the the citizenry including a, an amazing very very tall buffalo man uh who uh, is is the <laughs> I can't help but stare at every time I watch the episode I'm like what is up with this buffalo man the multiple times that this show will go, cut to Roshiu's perspective and Roshiu reacting what I would say is reasonably which is to be extremely bummed <laughs> about everything <laughs> Um, it is Simone who is like, hey man, we got this. It's cool. Here I come. We're going to do this together, man. No big deal. We're going to stay six feet apart from each other and take care of this. The fact that the show, it, multiple times, it, it takes it, uh, it on, upon itself to have Simone do that to Roshiu is, I think, pretty specific signaling about Roshiu and Simone's relationship, right? Uh, despite everything that, that, you know, Roshi was quote unquote done to Simone. Uh, Simone's empathy, which we talked about in the, the first half of the show, it ultimately is the unifying factor. Like, you know, as much as people are just happy that someone is here taking control and saving the day, uh, I think it's not a coincidence that it, it's happening. The two like, like triumphant moments of the episode are both times where Simone reaches out to Roshi and is like, Hey man, we got this. We we're, we're going to handle this. We we're, we're the best, uh, you know, we're the coolest. You're cool too. We we got this. In the first part, where he and Viral flex, and in the second, when they're captured in the Star Fox sixty four traps, uh, and uh, <laughs> one of my uh, I love this. I've never heard. I mean, Leron teases people, um, but I've never felt worse for Roshi <laughs> when uh, Leron tells him to quit whining. <laughs> <laughs> like, listen, he's not wrong to call out that that Simone kind of gets to to function under different rules than he does. I, I, you know, there's there's a lot of I am on the 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 side that Roshu is a, a really important figure in the text, and I, and I feel like his function is so thankless that I, I find myself very endeared to him as a character, and I and I feel like his journey is one that, like, in a lot of ways, legitimizes Gurren Lagann as, as a tech. <laughs> but he's fucking not wrong here that <laughs> Simone has different rules that he gets to function under. Um, but I, I think this is that kind of show, though. I, I don't think that's a crime for this show, because it is, it's a triumphant show. It's a celebratory show. It's not really one about wallowing in the circumstances, or I'm sorry, the consequences of, of actions that aren't really in your control. Right, um, and and so we get to celebrate. We we get to show up with our friends and and you know save the world and have time to eat cold pizza and play Halo. You know, like that's that's the vibe of the Digerendon, right? Is that they they're not the bros where it's like you and your your biker gang or whatever. It's it's just you and your friends. Like you can basically pretty easily project whatever kind of group social group that you're in onto the Digerendon and sort of uh, come to a, a found family sort of situation that I think precedes, like, you know, people really like to shout out the Marvel universe, uh, the cinematic universe as, as a found family sort of, like, dynamic. But Gurren Lagann 
it, you know, without being super about it, its huge cast of characters in the same way, really sets itself apart as a like found family narrative and, and, and one that is radical in, in the term of, of, of Stephen Hero. Um, yeah, I like a lot of those thoughts too. I know I've gone, I'm pretty critical of Roshu overall. And if you compare him to Simone, like I talked about before, Simone's greatest strength is his hope. Roshu's greatest sin is his lack of hope. You know, I've largely side-eyed him and held him at arm's length these last few episodes, but I think he does act with good intentions. You know, he's he's practical, but he kind of lacks objectivity. Objectivity. Because, like, he went to hell and back again with Simone and Kamina, and he knows, like, firsthand, empirically, he knows, he's seen it with his own eyes, that actual miracles can occur if you just, if people and individuals believe in him or herself. Like, Simone just has to believe in himself and he could call forth a gigantic drill that can smash through seemingly insurmountable barriers but i kind of think time and time again and i you know i don't envy him the responsibilities placed on his shoulders but he kind of takes the easy way out roshu you know instead of placing faith in the like the radical potential of collective action he manipulates and withholds information from his fellow citizens instead of being open and honest he is secret and conniving and he's grown too accustomed with the trappings of political power and kind of like, you know, too complacent with the status quo. He has a lot to gain from the status quo as well. And really the show shows that and argues that you have to, even if the status quo has the best intentions, you still need to check those power structures. You cannot become complacent. You know, as my wife might say, like, I'm, not, I'm not angry at Roshu, but I am disappointed with him overall. But I definitely think he is necessary for this text to work as well as it does. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think I, the thing I would say is that, you know, R- Roshu's failure to value the contribution of the other members is definitely, uh, I think that's the way I would describe his, his major sin. Uh, but the thing I would also say is that, you know, characters like this that have a, an identifiable issue are also, you know, are but, but are also necessary, right? I mean, I, I think Roshu certainly at times has been shown to be necessary. Roshu is the one who got the, the boat off the ground. And I think we can say the boat was pretty necessary to, you know, everything that happened in, in space. And so the problem that I think for, for Roshu is that you know he he wants to be he wants or you know maybe it's jealousy certainly I think the the scene where he says Simone operates under different rules uh, indicate jealousy uh, but I you know he, he fails to see that he is how important he is to what's going on and, that, and that's really you know and, and he he lacks that perspective which I think is why at the end of the episode he comes down so and is so negatively in such a depressed state I, yeah PMC. that last oh yeah. That last oh. line, though, like, I can't hold a candle to him. I mean, they just fucking, like, this is a victory they should be celebrating. And he's, like, more concerned with, like, maybe I'm stressing this a bit too much, but, like, almost an imaginary pissing contest with Simone. Like, he should be celebrating here, and he's, I, I understand why he's wallowing. It's just, you know, they've achieved all this collectively together, and he's concerned with, I can't hold a candle to him, which kind of bummed yeah. me. It's definitely, I think, you know, when we, when uh, in the previous episode where we discussed how... Uh, the reveal of the core drill around Roshi's neck is is kind of indicative of how personal this actually did end up being for him. That there's an aspect of it that is definitely in good faith, that is meant to be, uh, uh, you know, I want to continue what we did as a Daikurin Brigade, you know, what we, what we accomplished is under threat, and I'm definitely trying to save it. Um, but you know that cordial also reveals that that he wants to prove that his way was right and Simone's was wrong in this case, right? And I think that's understandable. Like I, I wanted to piggyback off of what PMC is saying, and that you know, 
characters like this existing in this text is what makes it in the long run going to be valuable what, what's going to uh you know and and it might not feel that way in the moment it might feel like oh god i can't believe i have to deal with this you know i'm sitting here eating my uh uh you know my steak and broccoli and I'll, look at all these giant pieces of broccoli this sucks but as it turns out broccoli is delicious and good for you and probably they cooked all of the stuff that was good for you out of it already <laughs> and it's covered in sauce but you should still eat it because it's great and it adds to the total picture. It, it is co- contributing to, quote, Shokugeki no Soma uh, in a less horny way. <laughs> uh, it's contributing to the total palette, right? It, it is, it is uh, all the tools coming together to it, it, uh, create a total picture. Um, and Roshiu, especially in that last moment where he... I, I really like what PMC had to say about Roshiu not being able to recognize what value he himself brings. I think that's directly on the money. I think that's a super apt uh, 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 observation about that character, and I, and I think that's part of why he is so, you know, to to say to quote the kids today, like his approach is so extra, right? It is because he doesn't understand where the line is necessarily for him because people take for granted how much he contributes, right? And and don't necessarily know how to communicate to him in a way that he will internalize how valuable he is beyond all this, you know, I don't want to say posturing because it's not, he, he is, he believes, you know, I'm going to say 85% of him completely believes in good faith in what he's doing. And then there's the 15% of him that took the core drill and was wearing it. (laughs) And, and I think that just makes him human rather than an anime character. Right. Uh, in a way that maybe a a bunch, I I wish Yoko had this vulnerability. I, I wish we had this insight into, the, the 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 her actions in the way that we do for Roshi. I feel like Roshi was a person who I I understand, and you know, to for better or for worse, we we can't really say that about a lot of the Dikerendon, right? Like there, we we could say that about Simone, we could say that about Kamina, who is dead, uh, and and we can say that about aspects of Yoko that I'm kind of pretending at, but really being with Roshi for this long and and watching the the decisions he makes and disagreeing with them as hard as we do you know some sometimes makes this a more interesting piece in its totality and and you know we will i think this is not the final stroke of the roshi story that will come in the next episode um but i I think uh in this watch around it has really become clear to me that this particular arc is completely necessary in order to emotionally prepare you for the the final stage of the story the space opera story where you know um the question is going to transform, you know, very recently uh, up until 22, I would say the, the structure of the episodes has, has been, how will they solve this new problem? Right. From episode 16 on it, it was like, there's a new problem now. How do we solve it? And now with the Dagurin Brigade back in control, the, it is kind of going to evolve into what kind of impossible solution will we see today? You know, what, what kind of, uh, of, of, insane uh out of the left field one percent possibility will the digern brigade excuse me have to you know find within themselves in order to succeed here and and the excitement from that is really going to depend on your ability to get behind the sort of energy that we saw in this episode that sort of triumphant return uh we're on a slip and slide to on the rest of the show for that 
and I'm 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 really curious to see how it lands this time, right? Uh, the first time around, I was really open to that. I was open to that experience of the roller coaster, like yay, this is the downtime, woo! Um, but now, as as someone who's interested in it as a total piece, especially the ending, I'm very curious to see how this lands overall. Uh, were there any final notes about 21 and 22? I feel like I'm wrapping up, but did, did anything else you guys wanted to cover? As I I know I'm on record as being someone who occasionally my brain gets broken by super robot stuff being super robot stuff. And I just want to say that everything involving the physics of the moon upsets me on a personal level, but I don't think we need to belabor the point. <laughs> well, if this helps, remember, it's not the real moon. Okay, it's- well, what happened, because the moon has an effect on the planet. They do show that <laughs> when the moon's getting close. Gravity yes. does matter. Yes, but like, gravity does matter. What do you think it does to all the bodies <laughs> of water on the planet when the moon... First off, its center of mass probably shifts around a bunch when it's transforming yes. into a spaceship. Yes. And then when it just pulls away, like, I understand it's going back to its old orbit, probably, but, like, mm, I don't know. That's going to do some weird stuff, probably. So I believe we will learn in the next episode, <laughs> I believe, that the real moon is still there. It is just hidden in a pocket in space-time. And I believe this will, you will be very upset to learn that <laughs> this nice. pocket in space-time... Nice. We're in a Star Trek time, episode now. <laughs> this pocket in space-time allows the the physics of what the moon does for our planet to remain in place, even while I, the cathedral Terra has taken the place of the actual moon. But I, there's only wrong. Th- there's only one word to describe this. That's <laughs> lunacy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on that note. Uh, that'll do for uh, 21 and 22 of Gordon Lagan. Uh, you can catch us next time. Uh, you can catch us at mechanationspod at twitter.com. You could also get in contact with us at mechanationspod at gmail.com. If you want to yell at us about our big zom fucking diversions or our, our terrible zom. wordplay or horny zom, if you wanted to shout out horny zom, you can reach out to us there. Uh, next time, 23 and 24, we're just going to continue down our, uh, into the, the mind labyrinth of Tengen Tapagurn Lagan's final arc. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. Space operas are always my shit, Hell yeah. Space opera.